Welcome to episode seven of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Throughout. I'd like to begin by thanking our Patreon subscribers, Adam Hahn, Christine Welchel, and Isaac Rennert. And your name, with you being a listener, could go here too as well if you support us at patreon.com slash recreational thinking. Our guests today are Victoria Gross, Troy Meyer, and a special surprise guest being myself. Uh, we <laughs> Also joined by Jason Meyerowitz, who for this episode will be taking over as host. As a birthday present for me, we've arranged an episode where I will get to be one of the contestants. So Jason put together today's game with the help of other fans of the podcast who he will credit when he gets the chance to speak, since I was not involved in the writing or editing process in any way for hopefully obvious reasons. But that order of Victoria, Troy, myself, remembered it's arbitrary, but will be consistent throughout the game. And so we can go now in that order and briefly state where you're not Skyping, but Zooming from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Victoria. Hi, I'm Victoria. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm a scientific editorial assistant at a biomaterials journal. And Troy? Hi, I'm Troy. I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, live in Tampa, Florida, and I'm an indie music executive. All right. I'm... Yoga Shrouth, originally from Springfield, Illinois. I live in Vancouver, Washington, and I'm a mediocre podcaster. <laughs> and now Jason, same thing. Hi, all. I'm Jason Myrowitz, your guest host for today. Honored to be here. I am coming to you from Scottsdale, Arizona. I am a professor by day and really, really just humbled to be having this opportunity to present to three of the greatest quizzers in I would say the galaxy at this point, but you never know what else is out there. All right. So this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round, I call the three R's round for reasons that aren't really relevant today because I didn't write it. These questions will mostly serve as a warm-up, but they'll be worth the tenth of a point as tiebreakers. And so for this round only, we'll answer as individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, then it'll go to the second, then the third if both of the first two miss. So the further back you are, less of a direct shot you have to answer, but the more time you have to think and some potential answers could get taken off the table. And I just realized it should be connecting my external mic to sound better. While Yogesh is doing that, I will take a moment to pay my extreme thanks and respect to the many people who helped create the questions for today, starting with David Plotkin, Susanna Brooks, Ronnie Jackson, and Tim Rich who've all contributed in their own way. And it's been extremely helpful because we have, of course, some great quizzers here. So we wanted to make sure we had some challenges for all of them. Thank you. And so we'll rotate. So each of us gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second position, three in third. And then the rules will change after this round. And I will explain that when that happens. And now just a standard reminder, the content of the podcast is talking through the thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking. Feel free to share any interesting connections that pop up over the course of the game, but you don't need to just talk for the sake of talking. We have enough content that way. And so, yeah, now we will begin the three hours round with Victoria in first position. Victoria. Two of Michael Shore's most successful sitcoms were The Office and Parks and Recreation. Besides the similar documentary-style storytelling, the two shows shared a link through what indie band? The band performed a medley of hits during the Pawnee Eagleton Unity concert, and the Schrute family performed one of this band's songs on Dwight's porch. It is not too surprising to see this link if you consider that Shore collaborated with this band on one of its music videos for their sixth album. Okay, I have never actually watched Parks and Rec, but I did watch all of The Office last like fall winter. And if I'm remembering correctly, this is this is a band that I like. This is the Decemberists. 
The music video was Calamity Song in 2001. The shirts performed Sons and Daughters in the episode The Farm, originally intended to be a backdoor pilot. And The Decemberists performed along with Mouse Rat, Deuce Silver, and several real bands in the 5,000 Candles in the Wind, a tribute to Little Sebastian. So yes, The Decemberists is correct. Point one for Victoria. Well done, Victoria. Thank you. Was that the, I've seen the, them live. Was that the <laughs> on uh, David Foster Wallace, because I remember reading that Michael Shore was a big fan of Infinite Jets and made a music video inspired by it. He is a big fan of them, and there is a Parks and Recs episode that is entirely based around David Foster Wallace, but I don't know if there's a tie-in between that and the Pawnee Eagleton concert episode. Okay. Try it. What 1964 book that has been adapted into numerous radio and television shows, musicals, video games, an opera, and two feature films would not even be recognizable in its original form because of its wildly racist characters and undertones? Can you repeat the question, please? Could you repeat that, please? Thank you. I'm happy to. Oh, I'm sorry about that. What 1964 book that has been adapted into numerous radio and television shows, musicals, video games, an opera, and two feature films would not even be recognizable in its original form because of its wildly racist characters and undertones. Hmm. Yeah, not sure here. We'll say, let's try uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. In the original, Charlie was black and the Oompa Loompas were African pygmies. The NAACP complained that the novel was glorifying slavery and Dahl acquiesced. Charlie was changed to a poor white boy, though, not because of cries of racism, but merely because Dahl's agent worried that a black main character wouldn't be interesting to readers. Point one for Troy. Very nicely done. Thanks. I, Very I, nice, I, Troy. I feel like that was like a deus ex machina situation. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Yogesh. The classic Greek sculptor, Cressilus, is known for his lost statue of Athena of Velletry and his wounded Amazon statue which was displayed at the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. However, the Wikipedia page for Cressilus name-checks two additional works, both produced millennia later, that are not mentioned in any other formal Cressilus biographies. The first work is an 1804 biographical dictionary by British painter and poet Mary Matilda Betham, in which she writes about Cressilus, but mistakenly spells his name as Cressula with a C and no S at the end. What is the name of the second work, which is currently exhibited at a New York City art museum and includes a representation of Cressilus that the artist, in hindsight, almost certainly regretted? Yeah, I'm going to need that page to I can do that. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I, you know, in general with the podcast, it started after Jason taped, but in general, the questions are just automatically put into chat. When I did my taping, we were live, so there was no cut and pasting. So bear in mind, if I do post it, there may be little notes in there for me about pronunciation and things like that that shouldn't give you anything away, but just give you an insight into the small size of my brain relative to yours. Okay, so there's a second. We're looking for a work that's currently exhibited at New York City Art Museum. It includes a representation of Dressilus, who's a classic Greek sculpture, and the artist almost certainly regretted it. And that first hint may be hinting that maybe the artist was working off of the biographical dictionary and maybe even mistook the sculptor for a woman, perhaps. But that's just speculation. But okay, you're looking great. So basically, one work at New York City Art Museum. You don't say what kind of work it is. It could be a painting, it could be a sculpture. And 
may be done after 1804, but that's also not certain. So I'll try and think of things, works that contain artists. Yeah, this isn't the right period, but I'll just guess School of Athens. I'm afraid that is not correct. Victoria. So I was trying to attack it by, by thinking of which museums it might be, and I'm not 100% sure that this work is in New York, but I wonder if it could be The Scream by Edvard Munch, because it has been remixed in so many ways, and I have a feeling that would not have necessarily been to his to his taste. So that is my guess. An interesting guess, but also not correct. Troy. So when I look at this question, I see what what could be like a, and as Yogesh mentioned, like a mistaken or misgendering of the artist and the cluing of New York City Museum, which could point away from Manhattan. And so I'm thinking this could be the dinner party, which is in the Brooklyn Museum. So I'm going to guess that. Dinner party? Troy guesses the dinner party. While the two references are indeed connected, Betha mistakenly identified Cressless as a woman, maybe because of his associations with sculptures of powerful women from mythology. But Betham's dictionary was presumably consulted over 150 years later by an American feminist artist who was researching names of people to include in her most famous installation. Thus, even though there wasn't a quote confirming as such, it is almost certainly the case that she regrets including the name of a male sculptor in a work that is meant to highlight the contributions of women throughout history. That work by Judy Chicago is currently on display at the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum and is indeed called The Dinner Party. Taking Troy up to point two. Yeah, I got I got part of the way there, and then I just gave up, and I should have just kept following that logic. Yeah, I, I think no, you I, could probably see. I think Susanna could see on my face, like as Troy was starting to talk, something you said jogged it loose, and I was like, <laughs> Yeah, I could Ow. see. I could see Yogesh getting there, and like I'm like, Oh, he's totally going to get this. He's got it, and then sadly no. Yeah, that is definitely not, uh, you know it or you don't. You have to reason your way through to have any chance at that one, I think. But interesting information. I think maybe the name Chicago, I don't associate it with New York City for some strange reason. And that brings us back to Victoria. In 1970, Andrew M. Ramroop managed to save enough money to emigrate away from his native Trinidad, thus beginning a life-altering journey that led to his eventual recognition as one of the most talented people in his field. Ramroop's YouTube channel includes interviews from opera singer Neil Latchman and Harvard lecturer and public intellectual Henry Louis Gates, who both spoke very highly of his accomplishments. But according to Ramroop himself, his greatest accomplishment is the foundation of an academy that can be found at and is named after what specific location. To paraphrase one of his videos, the Academy enables him to mentor and teach students as they watch him work miracles with chalk. And I'll put that in the chat. Okay. So I didn't think this, I didn't think that this person had any connection with Trinidad, but the description to me sounds very much like Khan Academy, but can be found at and is named after what specific location? And his name is actually is Khan, so I, I don't think. Can we keep found at and is named after what specific location? So where do you do, where would one do things with chalk? Specific location. I don't think I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna say, I don't even have an intelligent guess. I'm gonna pass. All right, Troy. I liked the direction that Victoria was going. 
but yeah, I, I'm not really sure what to think here. Miracles of chalk. chalk. Yeah, you, you would think that that would point to education in some way. Like, uh, we'll, try, we'll try the United Negro College Fund. An interesting guess, but not really. Yogesh. Yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of Khan Academy since that is named after a man named Khan. But I suppose it's possible someone could be doing wordplay based off of it, but with the location's name, nothing springs to mind. Looking at what the question's highlighting, um, I mean, these are, I don't know if these are written by people trying to imitate my style, but I like to think my questions are usually a bit shorter, but they do generally, you know, not include irrelevant information unless I think it's particularly interesting. So I'm going off the assumption, sort of Gricean assumption that information is going to be included because it's relevant in some fashion. So Trinidad is mentioned, an opera singer I'm not familiar with, and an intellectual, it's not mentioned, but Henry Louis Gates, I believe, is Black. He's done a TV series about genealogy that traces ancestry of various people. And so all that makes me think that race is relevant somehow. Certainly a lot of different ethnicities were brought to Trinidad. There's a fairly high proportion of people with mixed Caucasian, Indian, and uh, Black ancestry. But then there's the chalk part as well. That's really highlighted, like it's going to be really relevant to the answer. Or miracles with chalk. That makes me think of something I considered when thinking about the racist book question, Mary Poppins. Yeah, what's going on here with that? I don't know. Could could be something art-related, could be working through math problems, and whatever it is, I'll have to tie it to a location of some sort. And yeah, nothing's really clicking here. So I, uh, I'll just get something Caribbean-related. I don't know. Well, let's just try Caribbean Sea. Well, you were all on the right track recognizing that the chalk part is in some way a hint, because Ramroop is a professor, but not a traditional member of academia. The reason why he was praised by both an opera singer and a public speaker is that they are frequent users of the expensive custom products that he creates. The chalk he works oh. miracles with is not blackboard chalk, but rather the kind used to make temporary markings on cloth when designing a bespoke suit. The phrase life-altering is a subtle nod to the fact that Ramroop is regarded as one of the best tailors in all of England, if not the world. In an attempt to bring new, more diverse generation tailors into the fold, he founded the Savile Row Academy. So Savile Row is the place that we're looking for and the name of the organization that helps encourage people to become tailors. Well, I was nowhere close to what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. Cool. On to Troy. Georgia Tech football player Billy Shaw was fittingly drafted by the Buffalo Bills, for whom he played his entire professional career as an offensive guard. His career highlights include eight all-star selections, being named as a member of an all-decade team, being added to the Bills' Wall of Fame, and at the age of 60, finally being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. According to his official Hall of Fame biography, he is the first and so far only player to be inducted that has what distinction? And I'll paste that. All right. Billy Shaw. I vaguely have heard of this guy at age 60. So there's got to be at least some kind of time gap here, like regardless of when he was inducted. Played his entire career with the Bills. Okay. I think... So something I'm thinking here is that it's possible, although 
I'm surprised that there aren't other players in the Hall of Fame that fit this distinction. But my thinking here is that because he played for the Bills, who were an AFL team, that perhaps he didn't play after the merger. And so maybe he didn't play in the actually play in the in the NFL as you know, as the league is constituted today. So let's try that. Let's try hasn't actually played in the NFL because he played in the AFL. The question did say that he was a member of an all-decade team, but did not say which decade. He played for the Bills from 1961 to 1969, which means that he retired right before the Bills and all other teams in the AFL merged with the NFL at the start of the 1970 season. Technically, players from all professional football leagues are eligible for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but so far, Shaw is the only Hall of Fame player to have never played a single NFL game. Another point for Troy. That's incredible, by the way, that there aren't any other like non-NFL players in the Hall of Fame. That's incredible. Isn't that amazing? And that, that includes this year, by the way, where they just added new people two weeks ago and still no nominees who have not played for the, for, or who have only played in the AFL. All right, Yogesh, your question. Advertised as the first work of its kind, the 2010 Encyclopedia of African-American Actresses in Film and Television contains over 350 short biographies presented in alphabetical order by surname under, uh, by the surname under which they are most frequently credited. In this encyclopedia, the entry on Cosby Show actress Keisha Knight Pulliam is flanked on both sides by biographies of women that coincidentally have portrayed what fictional character? I mean, I assume you're going to be posting every question like into chat. Like that's okay. Yeah. All right. So, intro. so the entry on Cosby Show is Keisha Knight Pulliam. So everyone in it is is going to be African American, presumably some level of non-trivial African ancestry, although. Some of them might be white passing. The question is where where would Keisha Knight Pulliam be listed alphabetically? Is there a surname Pulliam or Knight Pulliam? It seems relevant. If it's Pulliam, then there were probably two people, well, at least one with a P, possibly one with a Q or R. If it's Knight, it would be two Ks. Presumably their portrayals of that character are famous, and at least you know, somewhat notable. And likely it is a an African-American character, although that's not certain at all. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's probably a time when I could have just mentally scanned through all the actresses I knew whose names began with P or K, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not happening. So I, I'll try it from the other angle. Fictional African-American female characters played by multiple actresses. Yeah, I don't. I'm just going to... Um, I'm just going to guess Amanda Waller. Uh, not... Correct. No, Victoria. <laughs> um, uh, the avenues that Yogesh was using, Yogesh was using, were, were the two obvious ones, and <sighs> let's say, and 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 every character I can think of, who I'm like, yeah, they might have been portrayed more than once on film or TV. <sighs> the actresses I associate with them are nowhere near in the alphabet, so we'll say. We'll say best from Porgy and Bess. It's not right. I'm afraid no, it's not. Troy? I think it's Catwoman. Troy says Catwoman, and 
Yogesh might have gotten him on the right track with the correct genre for Amanda Waller. The two actresses we're talking about here, the Encyclopedia's compiler clearly thought that the actresses who alphabet the actress who alphabetically precedes Knight Pulliam is the more famous of the two because a, co- a photo of her is actually on the Encyclopedia's cover. The one who follows Knight Pulliam is the daughter of one of her longtime co-stars, Lisa Bonet. The two actresses are, of course, Eartha Kitt and Zoe Kravitz, who both portrayed a character whose surname coincidentally starts with K, Gotham City anti-hero Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, on the 1960s Batman TV show and the 2017 Lego Batman movie, respectively. Kravitz will play the character a second time in the next live-action Batman movie scheduled for 22. And as if that were enough, Sana Lathan, the actress who appears immediately after Kravitz in the encyclopedia, has also portrayed Kratwoman in the recent Harley Quinn animated series. Hmm. So three out of four people in a row playing Catwoman is pretty neat, especially since she's, of course, also known for being played by plenty of non-African-American actresses. That's true. All right. It's another for Troy. And we go to Victoria now. The New Zealand city of Dunedin was established by Scottish settlers in 1848, but its land was first permanently occupied by Europeans in the 1830s when brothers Joseph, George, and Edward opened a trading port in Otago Harbor, displacing the local Maori population via both disease and outright kidnapping. In what could be construed as sweet irony, eldest brother Joseph also fell ill and died of tuberculosis, and as his remains were shipped to Australia in a container of rum. Even though Scotsman Nathan Evans has no historical connection to these brothers or to Dunedin, he and his 800,000 plus followers could tell you that Joseph, George, and Edward all shared what two-syllable surname. Yeah, you're going to need to face that. (laughs) It's on its way. Remains sweet irony. Okay, so uh, established by Scottish settlers. I know it's named after Edinburgh. Eight hundred thousand followers. I don't think this is religious. I have a feeling this is YouTube, and I have a feeling this is somebody who tastes whiskey. So I'm going to say that their last name is whiskey. Is a thing I cannot drink. So I'm not terribly up on my sweet irony. Also, okay, I'm assuming that the sweet irony is just that they transmitted disease and then he died of disease. I don't think that is, well, actually, uh, I think I'm still on whiskey. Um, let's try brothers. Is this Walker? I'm afraid it's not, but listeners will be intrigued by Victoria's avoidance of whiskey when we get to her personal categories a little bit later. Uh, (laughs) And that passes to Troy. Oh, man, where to begin with this? So a couple things I'm picking up here that stand out are remains shipped to Australia in a container of rum. So I'm guessing that this is probably, these guys are probably like... (sighs) They're living on the edge of society somehow, or like, you know, their their relationship with the law may be, you know, <laughs> tenuous. I don't know. Like this isn't something you do as like a as as a normie, I guess. And the <laughs> the eight hundred thousand followers on on uh, social media, that's interesting, but I wish I had any way in here. Victoria's thing with about 
whiskey is, is interesting, but yeah, I just don't know. And I feel like it will all make sense when the answer is revealed, but I unfortunately don't, don't know what to do. So I'll guess a whiskey brand. Let's try McAllen. Also not what we're looking for. You'll guess. Yeah, so I have a very, very shallow knowledge of people on YouTube or social media with lots of followers and a practically non-existent knowledge of whiskey or alcohol-related things in general. I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe it's a mistake giving this away, but I think most people who care know that already. So I not much I can do with that. I mean, you already gave the, the New Zealand geography pink, then you can ship to Australia in a container of rum. That's interesting, but I don't know if it's a clue or if it's just a fun story. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't even know what kind of channel this could be. Something like drunk history type thing. But neither drunk nor history has two syllables. Yeah, I'm not getting anything. So I'll just say a two syllable thing relating to New Zealand, Auckland. So this one is a little niche. The company formed by these brothers was especially popular with nearby whaling expeditions, and the brothers had great financial success in selling provisions to whalers while they were out at sea. The supply ships and their employees were referred to by the brothers' surname, and at some point, a popular whaling song was composed in which the whalers await the supply ship that will come to bring us our sugar and tea and rum. The popularity of this song increased significantly over the last few months, thanks in large part to the recent sea shanty craze on social media. <laughs> I wish I were making that up. No, uh, I'm, I'm, going to have to, I'm going to have to apologize to my friend Joe right now who, who had, it, frequents a she, sea shanty night in normal person times. So. <laughs> you, you never know what you're going to learn on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, TikTok user Nathan Evans gained hundreds of thousands of new followers for his cover of the song, which is called Soon May the Wellerman Come, something that was shortened to the Wellerman. And the two-syllable surname of the founders is Weller. The fact that Weller is nearly a homophone of a whaler is entirely coincidental. So, so I have to say that I did come across the popularity. Not, I did not the actual like recording or whatever, but I came across the fact that the guy named Nathan Evans was getting really popular for sea shanties. And I did make a note to commit that to memory in case it ever came up. And clearly I did not follow through on that. I think yeah, same, same here, you guys. types of questions, you might be asked more for his name than that level of specificity. So now that will probably be burned in your brains forever. <laughs> I'll never forget this question. <laughs> All right, well, let's see how you'll do about this one, Troy. Donald Glover's stint hosting Saturday Night Live in 2018 was particularly memorable for his debut live performances of This Is America and Saturday under the stage name Childish Gambino. But that was not the only stage name he sang under that night. In a sketch simply titled 80s Music Video, Glover portrayed a creepy trench coat wearing singer named Raz P. Berry who laments that he saw his girlfriend on a date with another man and monologues at her about the petty things he did for revenge. Though it was never explicitly stated during the episode, sketch co-writer and co-star Cecily Strong later confirmed that her intent was to parody the music video of what song? This one-hit wonder was notably one of the first hit singles issued by Def Jam, which is somewhat surprising for a record label that tends to concentrate more and more on hip-hop than R&B. Okay, so... The thing that immediately jumped out to me here, and this just may not be, may not be right, but is I, I remember this sketch and I sort of remember 
how Donald Glover was dressed and it was sort of the like, you know, Michael Jackson, Billy Jean sort of look. And the cluing here of creepy man, like watching a date on the other, with another man leads me to think of the, the Rockwell song with Michael Jackson on the hook, Somebody's Watching Me. So uh, let's go with that. Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell. Good reasoning, but not what we're looking for here. Yogesh. Yeah, so this is one where, first of all, the information, this is one where we're solving wouldn't require any lateral thinking because I watched the sketch, I read message boards afterwards, I saw people's posts about the video and about it being this song, and they even probably posted the link to the video. I also frequently quiz with my local teammate and friend, Alexander Darby, who is a absolute expert on all pop music, but especially 80s pop music. And so I basically, my mind has learned that it doesn't really need to retain anything related to 80s pop music, because if I quiz on any kind of theme with Alex, you'll know it. So it's really just a waste of time. So this was definitely something I saw. It wasn't something I was familiar with in any other context. And so my brain did not retain it. And I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Victoria, I I, I pass it to you. (laughs) I don't think I can, I don't think I have any way I can, I can follow that. So, I mean, the two things, the two things that come to mind haven't been mentioned is the name kind of sounds like LB Sure. A little bit. If I could remember any LB Sure songs, that would really help. But the other thing is that Def Jam was around like early 80s founding, I'm pretty sure. So this is going to be like a little earlier than, than something that I would really remember growing up listening. I was born in 81. So could it be Hello by Lionel Richie? There were three possible ways to get at this. The first is the mere mention of Cecily Strong, Yogesh's rival for for notoriety of coming out of Springfield in uh, in the early eighties. The second are two. Uh, the second and third are two hints that were in the language. The mentioning of the fruit themed name Raz P Berry and the focus that I gave to the word concentrate in the last sentence, which are references to the singer of the song, Aaron Juice Jones, and that music video is The Rain. Yeah, never heard of it. (laughs) It is in fact, but the three of you deserve those. (laughs) Uh, And so the last question- The last question in the 3R section for Yogesh. Born in 1862, Winthrop Rutherford was a New York socialite who made a name for himself by nearly marrying a Vanderbilt and then actually marrying Alice Morton, the daughter of former vice president Levi P. Morton. But for many people, the goodest part of Winthrop Rutherford's legacy involved his connection to Warren Remedy, who as of now is still the only three-time winner of what? It is unclear whether the shared WR initials were coincidental, but it's very likely that Matt Nelson would nevertheless rate this question a 12 out of 10. Okay, so I think I can maybe make actual headway with this one in a way that I couldn't on most of the others. Let's see, I was just reading about the Vanderbilts and the Whitney's, but that doesn't seem all that relevant. I, of course, remember Levi P. Morton from List Learning, but I don't know much else about him. The 12 out of 10 part, though, that's the relevant thing, because it, it reminds me of that meme that was going around about someone who was giving 
high ratings to a bunch of dogs and then someone named Brant or Brent complained about this and was told they're good dogs, Brent. So that would fit with the goodest part and the 12 out of 10. And so now foreign remedy. My first thought of hearing that name was that it was a horse, but Kentucky Derby winners are only allowed to run when they're three years old. So it'd be hard to win that or similar races three times. So I think we're in the dog area, which puts us into probably one of the two main dog shows. I think the, the Westminster and the AKC. One is in Philadelphia, one is in New York. I know someone here in Vancouver who went to the, the one in New York and actually appeared, her bracelet appeared in the New York Times style section. Some photographer took a picture of just her bracelet and got into the, the style section of the New York Times. It doesn't happen very often for people from Vancouver. So I don't remember exactly which one it was, but I, I will guess Westminster Kennel Club dog show, best in show. Shout out to Matt Nelson and the grammatically incorrect use of goodest, both reference a popular Twitter account whose initials also contain a WR. We rate dogs. The dog rating assigned by this Twitter account always exceeds the maximum on a scale of 1 to 10 because they're all good dogs. But Fox Terrier Warren Remedy would be particularly deserving of such a rating because in 1907, 1908, and 1909, she won Best in Show at the Westminster Kennel Dog Show. Very nicely done. Well salt. <laughs> Uh, and 12 out of 10. Yes. <laughs> it's a very basic saving of face now to not come out of this round with a complete shutout. Uh, indeed, no. You are tied for second with Victoria, each of you having point one. But Troy has an early lead with point four, but we have all of the personalized categories still to come. So obviously it is anybody's game. But if we do have a tie, I think it will go to Troy because of his early Point three lead. So, uh, by the way, Jason, are you the one? Are you keeping score? Uh, I am. Okay. You good. have a different score? No, I, I mean, I, I, I would have done it if no one else was, obviously. But if you're going to do, I mean, obviously, everything can be double checked because this is recording. So, you know. Right. Yeah. So it's not, it's not that important to be 100% on top of things. But yeah, if you're going to handle it, then I will put my mental energy to the actual questions where it seems like it's needed. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, I will, I will certainly uh, do my best to keep up with the score, as was my intent from the get-go. Future Yogesh here. This decision would come back to haunt both Jason and I. But in any event, if this is your first time joining us, here are the rules. In this round and in all successive rounds, each player will get three specialist questions related to their categories. But before they can answer, their opponents get to work together to try and steal the points from them. They'll only get a chance to answer for points if their opponents miss. Sometimes there may be bonus questions given if they're stolen from. These are unevenly and quasi-randomly sprinkled throughout the game. These bonuses will relate to the question but won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. They'll be worth half as many points as a steal. The questions in this round are not all that hard, so they'll be worth two points as a steal and one point as a specialist. That will increase in later rounds as the difficulty increases. And now and for the rest of the game, points go to both stealers, even if only one knew the answer. So keeping with our current sequence, we are on to Victoria's categories, which means that Yogesh and Troy will be able to collaborate to see if they can steal the question from her. And the first of the categories that we have here, as alluded to earlier because of her abstinence from whiskey, 
is something that she does appreciate, which is sparkling wine. And so, Yogesh and Troy, you are welcome to try to steal this other question, though I guess we've all heard about Yogesh's general feelings towards alcohol as a whole. So, Troy, you might have to do some of the heavy lifting on this, unless one of you can reason it out. This is 0% surprising to Troy, by the way. I have a feeling that it... (laughs) I've spent a lot of Zoom time with Victoria, and no. (laughs) Well, anyone who is a new listener for this special episode knows that people are not made aware of their opponent's categories ahead of time, but people like this who do know each other may be able to guess what one another consider to be their areas of expertise. That said, Troy and Yogesh, what is the enigmatic name of the workers who twist champagne bottles one-eighth of a turn every day in order to push the leaves into the neck of the bottle? Oh, I think I do. I know this. Do you have well, that's good because I, I don't. <laughs> so, so there was in the recent food and drink mini league, my scores varied quite a bit because there were entire, so, so there were some where, you know, I could, I'm, I'm not a, you know, food and drink, anyone who looks at my, my preliminary profile knows that that's my weakest category overall. There were certainly days in which I could, you know, recognize enough clues and lateral my way into them that I got a nine, six. There was also a day devoted entirely to cheeses, which being lactose intolerant is extremely outside my uh, uh, (laughs) area. And there's an entire day devoted to alcoholic beverages, which was far and away my worst day. The only question I got right on that was a question about what is it called when you turn or twist these champagne bottles? And it is called riddling, which makes me think that the workers who do it might be called riddlers or enigmas, perhaps. Yeah, that, that, that rings a bell. I like that. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's, let's lock in. Are you okay with locking in Riddler? Yeah, go for it. All right, Riddler. You guys picked up on my weak word play, and enigmatic is indeed a reference to enigma, otherwise known as the Riddler, which is also what oh, people nice. with this cushy job is known as. So that is a point for both Troy and Yoga. I'll give you three guesses. Who wrote that question in the food and drink mini league? (laughs) Oh, man. That would be me. (laughs) Oh, I feel doubly silly coming up with that question. (laughs) But at least it didn't make its way back to you. (laughs) And I really would have been sitting on it. Okay. And like a good comic book villain, her plans backfired on her. (laughs) (laughs) Victoria is like the least villain-like person on the planet. <laughs> no, uh, least? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll call it a multi-way tie as we move on to Troy's question, which has a chance to be stolen by Victoria and Yogesh. Von Dutch hats are a tribute to what motorcycle riding artist whose nickname was Van Dutch. He is best known for his role in the custom culture movement. Motorcycle riding artist. So the custom and culture are with plays. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think this is going to be a musical artist or do you think this is going to be a visual artist? Hmm. I mean, there's a visual artist. There aren't going to be too many, I know. Then Deutsch literally means like... The German. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be like Oldenburg. 
I don't, I don't really associate him with riding motorcycles, but. I have a feeling if it's an artist, it's going to be somebody more along the lines of like a street artist, like a, a cause or a Banksy or, you know, somebody more along those lines than like. Like someone in museums. Yeah. Yeah. Like Ego Leonard or somebody. <sighs> Motorcycle riding artist. The only like distinctive hats I can think of are like the ones that Devo wore. <laughs> I don't know if that's relevant. Those are called energy domes. So oh. that's, okay. I mean, that that's like a brand, a, a brand of hat, but motorcycle riding artist. Yeah, um, that, that doesn't ring any bells for me, although it does narrow down the time period, certainly. Yeah, so there's so other street artists. You've got people like... Mr. Brainwash, you've got people like Lee Quinones, you've got people, nickname was Van Deutsche, German. You've got people like, nickname was, so it's probably somebody who's, who's dead, um, unless they, they've completely changed their nickname. <laughs> who, so there was like an art brew artist who, who died while doing a robbery. He's kind of associated with like I've, I've seen him kind of linked together with Basquiat in, in like criticism and his name is um, Stefan Mandelbaum, which would be kind of a Germanish name. He would have died around the eighties. So late enough to be motorcycle riding. I don't have much more than that. I, I mean, if it's a musician, if it's a musician, I still don't have anything. Custom culture makes me think that it is something visual. And, and probably not like a producer or I would probably go with Mandelbaum if it's just me, but I don't think it's right. Okay. In, in, in tribute to the Seinfeld episode, that's one of the later of these ones, I think we have to answer Mandelbaum. Mandelbaum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I very much appreciate the reference that I do get. I will throw it to Troy to see if he has a better guess. So I... I've seen this and I know like this is a thing and like this is like a like the hats are named for like some other guy but his name I don't know and so the best I can do is guess here and I'll try let's try uh Roberts a fair guess but his name is Kenny Howard he is also known as Joe Lunchbox he could paint at a professional level by age 10, and after he died in 1992, his daughters sold the Von Dutch name to designers Robert Vaughn and Michael Castle, who made it into the hipster douchebag empire it is today. <laughs> is your category hipster douchebags? Confirm, deny. <laughs> well, well, I do. Well, I do know a lot about that. Um... <laughs> no. <laughs> I think we may have discovered the identity of enigmatic AV club commenter, hipster D-bag. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Victoria and Troy, I will give you a chance to now steal Yogesh's question. What actor appeared as two different characters across three different Bond movies? He played CIA agent Jack Wade in GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies, while taking a turn as the villain, Brad Whitaker, in The Living Daylights. In case it's unclear, I should mention that those are three different James Bond movies. I not, movies about, not movies about the Bond <laughs> Michael Milken. They are not commercials for Gold Bond, so do not worry if you are having any sorts of physical ailments. This will not help you. So 
horse person to horse person, do you have anything here? (laughs) 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 So so the horse person thing, I live under a rock. I I completely miss things that are are ubiquitous because I, I, I interact with pop culture in weird ways. Basically, either I'm obsessed with it or I don't know it. Or I learned it for trivia purposes. Um, and I think I've seen two James Bond movies ever. So I, I got nothing. I, I, I think that Christopher Lee was in a Bond movie, but beyond that, I don't know. Um, yes, no, I've seen two Star Wars. Thank you. <laughs> I, I swear, like, basically 90% of my movie knowledge is just stuff from flashcards. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at, one point, at one point, I had a, a film score of below 100 in Learned League. <laughs> so, so, name whoever you want, Troy. <laughs> you have my full and undying support. <laughs> um, I mean, it's somebody who would have been active in the, in the mid 80s to, to mid 90s. I mean, we know that. Yeah, how about somebody that's like physically imposing? Like, I have seen Tomorrow Never Dies. Like, it was out like twenty years ago, but uh, I think that might have been one. Like of Jonathan, Jonathan Price is like the bad guy in that one. So it's probably not him. We, it's okay, not. Yeah, we yeah. ruled one person out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, this is eight, good. We just have eight, to rule out eight billion plus to go. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Um, probably know. also not Zoe Kravitz. She was busy playing Catwoman. I, I think he's trying to throw us off, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Who who was in stuff around then? I mean, yeah, like who who would have? It's gonna yeah, be Warwick like Davis, a, like, a, like an action action person, like mid mid level action. Jeez, person. Um, so like you're you're. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't either. Um, no, just throw, throw out a name. Okay, well, I'd like to give my respect here to the great Bill Paxton, RIP. Uh, I am, is, is that what you're locking in with? Yeah, yeah. I like uh, the, I like the contempt with which you asked that. <laughs> no, I am I am also a huge Phil Paxton fan, but I'm afraid that is not what we are looking for in this particular instance. Yogesh, could you help them out? Yeah. So this this I mean, you know, you're certainly someone active in the 80s and 90s of his career began in the late 60s, and he maybe had his big roles he's remembered for in the 70s. It's a very distracting animal in the background there. Um, um, uh, yeah, so, so you know, obviously I could, I could, I'm starting to realize I should maybe have just had all film categories now, but uh, this was certainly something I could answer in my sleep, so I devoted my attention to trying to remember the name of the, the CIA agent that he played in Edge of Darkness, which was a British miniseries that came out in the mid-80s, and um, he was basically kind of the token American, and embodied pretty much exactly what British people in the 80s thought of as Americans being, like, loud, blustery, obnoxious, but ultimately helpful. And that miniseries was directed by Martin Campbell, who then cast him as, who also directed GoldenEye, and presumably, you know, was kind of going back and basically having him repeat that CIA agent characterization. His name is Joe Don Baker. Future Yogesh here. After all that time I spent trying to remember the name and ultimately succeeding, I forgot to say it during the recording session. It was Darius Jedberg. 
which is no Buford Pusser, but still. And you took every single comment that I possibly had to add to this, <laughs> which leaves me with nothing to say, but well done. Uh, emphatic, emphatic. All right, we now move on to Victoria's second category and a chance for Yogesh and Troy to steal. Despite having no prior professional experience as a game developer, Eric Barone managed to design, write, program, and animate the critically and commercially successful video game Stardew Valley entirely by himself. According to a 2018 interview, he was motivated by a desire for a better version of what video game series whose first game debuted on the Super Nintendo in 1996. This series was recently rebranded as Story of Seasons, but its original and best-known English title references an annual phenomenon that occurs close to the autumnal equinox. So I'm working with Troy on this? That is correct. All right. It's like Victoria knows me and knows <laughs> where, where my biggest weaknesses are. Um, I am, like, useless on video games, I guess. So this is... Yeah, You're going to be doing no lifting here. I've attempted to pick up a little bit through osmosis here and there, but again, you know, my, my teammates, particularly Alex, are very strong on video games. I usually just defer to them on that. Same. I send all video game questions to Victoria or not me. <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, Andrew. Okay. So, okay. All right. So start, I vaguely heard of Stardew Valley, but don't know much about it. Not really too much for her own. Um, okay. I, I, I had Eric Barone and I was like, is this going to be about Eric Barone? I can like, <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can get this one. Um, okay, so debut on Super Nintendo. And I think, okay, so that wipes out because what not a little all that you have is pretty much tied to the original NES. So this is something that did not appear on the original NES or Game Boy or any of those. It debuted on Super Nintendo. Recently, the band was Story of Seasons. Hmm. I'm not sure if that's just supposed to indicate something like you know, Chinese origin, like Story of a Stone, or if it's specifically about Stevens, but it's best known English title reference as an annual phenomenon. This seems like the thing that we'll have the best chance of honing in on, or honing in yes. on. The annual phenomenon that occurs close to the autumnal equinox. Okay, that, the, the winter one is in um, January, so the autumnal one, is that in October? I should know this better. September. September, okay, yeah. Because yeah, the winter one is in December, and then yeah, yeah, September and summer is in June. Yes, I I used to know all that when I was a child, and yeah, okay. So September, mid September, around the twentieth or twenty first, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, phenomenon is an interesting wording. Like it, it suggests to me, like something that's natural, or something that, yeah, so, something like maybe meteorological or. Um, like astronomical or um is there, is there a meteor shower that occurs around then yeah it is the i think october is the perseids is that right i yeah, I'm, I'm, always meant to learn those things and the same same <laughs> it's a list that's on my list uh, <laughs> uh hmm. yeah i can't off the top of my head think of a game and i mean this is with this being earlier on there should be stuff that's at least somewhat familiar even if we don't know too much about it yeah so i've not heard of anything called Perseid or anything like that there's something called kid icarus but i don't know what that is or what phenomenon it could refer to but, but could I do, it, yeah could, like yeah i think I, yeah phenomenon like something like like uh 
like I like the astronomical direction here. It does seem in terms of annual phenomena, it could either be man-made, in which case the autumnal yeah. would be an odd way of defining it. I mean, it could be some kind of festival that's linked to like harvest or whatever. But, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but if it is astronomical, I mean, yeah, there aren't any like annual comets. It seems likely to be a meteor shower. What about something like um, like one of the what are the moons like a like blood moon or hunter's moon something like that like that sounds like it could be the name of a game hunter's moon right or blood moon they do sound like it yeah in terms of annual yeah i know for instance there was a there was a blood moon shortly after i moved to portland it was caused by a huge forest fire which was caused by some teenagers being idiots. <laughs> and yeah i mean I, I remember from that american horror story season it does yeah it is it's definitely very um, interesting to look at and, and sinister, but I don't know that it's an annual phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not, not, not sure what to do here. What do you think? Well, okay, so either we can kind of break it down. Okay, we can break it down to either something, human, a human phenomenon or a natural phenomenon. If it's a human phenomenon, can we think of anything that would be linked to the autumnal equinox and occurs every year? Maybe a music festival, a harvest festival, we have like name your like pagan like related festival. Um, it seems that I don't know. It, it, it seems like I, I suppose it's possible that you could have a game named for like a pagan, a pagan festival. Um, so that's kind of one branch of the tree. The other yeah. branch is going to be natural phenomena. There aren't too many weather phenomena that reliably occur every year. Like even stuff like El Nino is. You know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it seems maybe not weather-related, seems probably astrological, and of those, I mean, happening once a year, there's not too many, even, you know, stuff like Blue Moon doesn't happen every year. Yeah. Probably, it, it could very well be a meteor shower, those are later and evil. So it seems like those are the two, again, sort of just, you know, pruning away stuff that, you know, won't help us. It seems we could either go down that road and try and think of a human you know, human festival, maybe pagan related or something agricultural or meteor, some kind of meteor, some meteor derived thing like Leonid or Perseid or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, could it be, yeah, could it be named for like the mythological, like namesake of, um, of one of the meteor showers, like Perseus or Orion or Leo, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Um, and, and actually, yeah, looking at the story of seasons, that also, I think maybe we should tilt toward the natural world there. Yeah. Um, okay, so what about something like Orion's Gate? That very giving to bell. Yeah, something connected to something connected to Orion. That doesn't sound too shabby. <laughs> what would you call this game? <laughs> yeah. So what is Stardew Valley? Because it looks like it was designed to be a better version of this game. So what is what is Stardew? Yeah, what is Stardew Valley about? That's a great question that I know Victoria can answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Because, yeah, 96 would have been around when, like, Super Mario Kart started. Because I think that started with SNES. And, I mean, I could definitely see one of those courses being called Stardew Valley. <laughs> they all have names like that. But um, is, yeah. is maybe Stardew Valley, like, one of the, like, farming-type games that, like, you, like, build a garden? Is that it? Like, you have, like, your house and a garden. Maybe. Yeah. I uh... Could that be related? If it is, if it is that. Is that when, when is that would that be when harvests occur around the autumnal equinox? Because presumably yes. 
Yes. Yes. Winter yeah. would kill the crops, so presumably you would sow them in the spring and then reap them in the autumn. What about? Well, then what about like the harvest moon? Okay. Yeah. Harvest moon. Harvest. So there's something with the reaper in it for that. Oh yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. Yeah. We can't think of anything. I guess we may as well throw this over and save our energy for other questions. But um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So you want to go with I don't know harvest moon. Sure. All right, let's try Harvest Moon. I hate you both. <laughs> that was oh, one it, of the most is that incredible. That's it. Oh, <laughs> I was like, I, I, I'm doing my best to keep a poker face over here. And I'm like, I just know you're dancing around it. And Troy is going to pull a Troy because <laughs> this happens so often when we play together. And yeah, that is it. <laughs> that was absolutely amazing to watch. <laughs> Uh, starting with zero knowledge of Stardew Valley's what it even was <laughs> and managing to work their way to the very correct answer of Harvest Moon. Very well done. I, I feel uh, privileged to have been a part of that. You guys. So. <laughs> well done. Well done. So like I try and create these experiences for players and like part of me in the back of my head was like, it would be cool to like go through something like that myself, but it's never gonna, never gonna happen. <laughs> But oh, it did happen, but it, it was on video as well. Like the Proctor didn't take to demonstrate that we could not be cheating on something like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, have, I have played like three of those Harvest Moon games. Oh man, I really thought you were going to go to the meteor shower. And I was like, God. and then you start talking about the moon. I was like, Troy's going to do it. I knew <laughs> it. <laughs> I really thought that they were going to say Blood Moon. And then yeah, I it thought was that going might to be hard too, for and... me to hold a poker face while I threw it over to Victoria. Yeah. But they got there, and that was a feat. Uh, <laughs> Good job. Unfortunately, that means that another one has been stolen from Victoria. But here is your chance to steal, together with Yogesh, this question that is for Troy. Producer Rodney Jerkins joined forces um, with Super... Uh, Sorry? Uh, look, at, look at what you posted. Did I post the wrong thing? Look at the bottom of it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Okay, well, I screwed up. Uh, totally understand. Uh, I may or may not have a replacement for question, but I'm going to go to the. Oh, well, I have an amazing pinch writer in Susanna Brooks who is going to be working on a replacement question in the meantime. In the meantime, what I'm going to start with is the bonus question that I have here for what I thought, because I thought that this question was likely to be stolen. I'm instead going to go ahead and use the bonus question as the question itself. And I apologize. I completely screwed that one up for anybody who is listening. So maybe this will be edited out. Who knows? At any rate, here is the chance for Yogesh and Victoria to steal a question from Troy. What songwriter, a longtime collaborator with Rodney Jerkins, has a songwriting credit on Come Together, but tragically died in a car crash before it was released? Nicknamed Big Shiz, he won his first Grammy for co-writing Say My Name with Jerkins and the members of Destiny's Child. Okay, I'm pretty sure this is LaShawn Daniels. I'm, I, I, it's either right or I'm mixing up the name. Um, yeah, just to be I mean, based on the pre-breath of the previous question, the, the Come Together is referring to is a gospel song from 2020, not the Beatles song. But yeah, I, I will defer to you uh, the name of the individual. I mean, my thing is died. Did he? Yeah, he died. He died recently. I'm pretty sure about that. I I, th I think that's right. I think that's who it is. 
all right, hopefully I can do something else that people on my podcast do that I never have a chance to, which is ride the coattails of someone to points when I <laughs> Um, I think it's LaShawn Daniels. Okay. Uh, Selecting, yes, that is the correct answer. And again, sorry for uh, messing that one up a little bit earlier, but yes, you, you've gotten there. So that is another stolen one. And we've got points for Yogesh and Victoria. All right. Yeah, another uh, reason wow. that I, I write bonus questions is just, it hasn't happened yet, but just in case something happens where a question gets blown, I can pull one out for a spare. So that's a perfectly acceptable thing to do. That's worked out. I'm hopeful that you would have gotten the come together anyway. I, I and think that... we would have off of the Beatles clue. Okay, then this probably didn't have an impact on the score, but we did miss out on a chance for Troy to show off his knowledge in the bonus question. But I know that there's another question coming up, which will be helpful. In the meantime, here's a chance for Victoria and Troy to steal from Yogesh. One of Eddie Redmayne's earliest film roles was as Anthony Bakeland in the movie Savage Grace. What Redmayne actress was the top billed person in this film playing Anthony's mother, Barbara? Later, she and Redmayne would go on to win their first and so far only acting Oscars at the same ceremony. So let's see, Eddie Redmayne. I'm pretty sure this is Julianne Moore, Victoria. Let me think about the year. She's definitely only won one. I, I thought still Alice was later than theory of everything but maybe not I, this is one of the like 20 movies that i actually have seen okay well if yeah. you've seen it and you know it then and you know she is a redhead she did win one pretty recently she has only won one it, it, it fits so yeah i'm with you though like i feel like still alice was like more recent a little later i mean yeah 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 Theory of Everything was like around 2014-ish, I think. Yeah, I think so. So let's see. But I mean, other people I'm thinking of that would be around then who are red-haired are not old enough to play, you know, who, who have won Oscars recently and are known for having red hair are not old enough to be playing mothers. You know, uh, Emma Stone, you know? Sure. And Julianne Moore is, so. I think that's, yeah. I think that's, I think that's a very solid guess. I, I. I, and I trust you, so. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, well, we, we go. We with play that. together on a, on approximately fifty five different teams at the <laughs> moment. Right. Yeah. The the empire of uh, Troitoria. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I generally know that if Troy says, I'm pretty sure it's this, it's very likely that. So. All right, we'll go. Yeah, we'll, let's go with it. We'll go with it. All right, Julianne Moore. At the 2015 Oscars, Redmayne won Best Actor for playing Stephen Hawking in The Theory of Everything, and the Best Actress Award for playing the title character suffering from Alzheimer's and Still Alice was Julianne Moore. Nice steal. Now I know what it's like to be stolen. Getting all of the experiences just as you wanted. But wait, there's more because there's a bonus question for a chance, no points, but for a chance for Yogesh to show off since his question was stolen from him. Anthony Bakeland was not Redmayne's only 2007 film role in which his character had the initials AB. He also played the treasonous Anthony Babington in a period piece whose title character is what historical figure. So first of all, bonus questions are worth half as many points as they're not worth Well, then for your chance at 0.5. Well, for one point, because the steal was worth two, so bonus would be worth one. Okay, I'm scoring incorrectly. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, steel. That, that that was actually part of the the spiel I had. But then you went directly into the first round without letting me do my spiel, and I was like, okay, I'll roll with it. But um, yeah, I was going to mention that in the first round, the steals are worth two points, non-steals are one, bonuses are one. Anyway, Babington, Babington. There's like a Babington cipher that I read about in some book of codes, and I want to say it's associated with. Can you paste the question text? Or... Sorry, did you give an answer? I asked if you could paste the question text. Oh, of course. Yeah, sorry. I was trying to redo the scoring since I screwed that up. Uh... Me before having to do redo a bunch of scoring. 2007. That's a high associated Babington in ciphers and stuff with like Walsingham, Elizabeth. Actually, no, wait, that's right. Because the first Elizabeth came out in 98. But 2007, there was a sequel which was also directed by Shaker Kapoor, because that was the year I attended the Oscars, and Kate Blanchett was nominated for both that and I'm Not There. And she did not win for Elizabeth, but she, for Elizabeth the Golden Age. She did win for, did she? No, she didn't. No, no, she didn't win either of them, actually. So I never got to see her that day. But I think this is Elizabeth the Golden Age, and the figure is Elizabeth the First. It is Elizabeth the First, who coincidentally is another natural redhead. Well done. All right, now we are on to Victoria's question, which can be stolen by Yogesh and Troy. David Babcock is a major fan of knitting, as well as another hobby. In fact, he is in the Guinness Book of World Records for knitting the longest scarf while simultaneously doing what other specific activity. His scarf measured 12 feet, 1.75 inches, breaking the record by self-proclaimed Extreme Knitting Redhead, Susie Hewer, in London in April 2008. I'm guessing this is the category that you predicted for me, Troy. <laughs> yeah, I actually have all three written down here. No, I, <laughs> 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 I mean, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with what kind of records get in there, which is what made me think something like riding a roller coaster. Yeah, or- exactly. Like... It would have to be some something that's like long enough in duration to like knit that long of a scarf, right? So, like climbing a mountain or presumably your hands would be occupied while climbing a mountain. I'd like that. Is, that, is, that is fair. Yeah, true. <laughs> but yes, I, I agree. It's something that would also it would leave your hands free. It would last a decent amount of time, and. You know, something kind of like whimsical that would, you know, get the attention of like Guinness. Yes, yes. And so riding the roller coaster was the first thing that popped in my head, probably just because I know that there are records that involve that, but I don't have anything better. First thing that popped into my head was the Appalachian Trail, but I think the hands part probably takes that one out. So <laughs> it's got to be something like, yeah, exactly, like attention getting and like famous in its own way, right? to get like the Guinness recognition, like walking up and down the Empire State Building. So again, you know, obviously neither of us are the meeting experts in that. um, Is that something you can do while like walking? Like you have to be seated in one place to do it? I don't think so. I mean, you can certainly quiz while uh, (laughs) while knitting. (laughs) But but (laughs) quizzing generally, unless it's that, the, the scavenger hunting they did to Kona. Generally, it's okay to do while seated. So, sure, uh, sure. I mean. Shout out Victoria and, and Susanna there. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
definitely makes it clear that you your hands are occupied and you are not doing anything else with them. And also productive too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, I like I like what you're saying though about like um, something that you would do that doesn't involve hands but requires a long time that you could presumably do moving, right? Right. Um, well, that's, that's because it, it does seem at least it would be difficult to do it while walking or, do, you know, basically while anything other than being seated. Right, yeah. It, would, <laughs> it wouldn't be noteworthy if you were sitting, right? Yeah, so. I mean, I'm sure an expert could, could figure out a way to do it, but it would be difficult. And which, again, just makes me think it's something that, like you said, does involve moving, but also involves being seated. And I feel like whatever the activity is, yeah, it's got to be something that is like famous, like in its own right or famous enough where like it like makes like a good headline for a record. So like, you know, ob obviously it wouldn't be swimming the English Channel because that, that, <laughs> that, would, be, that would not work, but something like that. Long in duration feats. Making the rep record that was already so someone else. Did. So this isn't something that's idiotic. <laughs> Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so some other maniac had done this before. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if one. I don't know about roller coasters in London. There's definitely a giant Ferris wheel. Oh yeah, that's. Yeah. yeah. London. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing to to think about. Yeah. So it's got to be it's got to be something that can be done in multiple places. So like maybe not specific to one one place or or, or landmark potentially. Yeah. And oh yeah, yeah. So not like those two yeah. or Empire State Building. Yeah. yeah. And can be done in London. So clearly yeah. not clearly not sunshine dependent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do in London that would take a long time that would be noteworthy? Or or like at least like to make a record. I mean London's well, famous for taxi cabs. You could certainly ride in one, but that wouldn't be remotely interesting because yeah. You can certainly spend hours and hours trying to navigate these streets of London, as I have done before. <laughs> where yeah, yeah. I was thinking something like that, maybe like walking, like walking the perimeter of the city limits or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I certainly you know don't want to second guess your problem solving abilities, which have been proven already in this game and in many other contexts. But I don't know if I'll think of anything that's a better fit than a roller coaster. Yeah, that's that isn't too bad. Yeah, or like riding the London Eye. Obviously, like you, you couldn't that that wouldn't translate like cross locations, or like riding riding the double like a double decker bus. Yeah, I feel I feel sort of stumped here, <laughs> to be honest. You want to just go with the roller coaster thing then? Sure, sure. All right, let's lock in uh, riding a roller coaster. It's a very interesting idea, Victoria. What do you think? I'm like 95% sure this is running a marathon. Well, the entire time that it took to do this is five hours, 48 minutes and 27 seconds, something that you would know if you were a big into running marathons. So that is correct. I, I know people who do the running while knitting thing. And I actually have a bag you can wear around your wrist <laughs> that it has like a little loop to put the yarn through so that it doesn't get dislodged while you are walking and knitting at the same time. So yeah, I, I do do that. <laughs> And I think we are all amazing. looking forward to seeing Victoria in the Guinness Book of World Records for swimming the English Channel while knitting <laughs> and seeing how long that wet scarf ends up. You can being. knit with plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't
don't even know what to say to that. All right, good, good job, Victoria. We are on to Troy's. We are on to Troy's question, which gives Yogesh and Victoria a chance to steal. The study of past stock market data, oh, especially, <laughs> especially price and volume, is one of the cornerstones of technical analysis of stocks and commodities. Critics of this type of analysis often call it a pseudoscience because of a strongly held belief that asset prices reflect all available information and prices are therefore unpredictable. What is the name, or its three-letter initialism, given to this financial ideology that it is impossible to beat the market? So this is going to be something like, and, and you probably know more about this from, from psychology, but, but in terms of like game theory, there are things like total information games and full information games where uh, nothing is hidden. I mean, whatever this ideology is, it's clearly something my father believes because he's been into investing since pretty much when I was born and he's a big proponent of value investing precisely because he's always told me it's impossible to time the market. Um, okay. So yes, but he, he was you know, not academically trained and never really told me names for things. So. so let's see, because of a strongly held belief that asset prices reflect all available information and prices are therefore unpredictable. So unpredictable, why would prices be unpredictable if prices reflect all information? Yeah, I was a little, I'm a little confused by that wording, actually. And therefore, it's probably important. But, okay, so presumably, if the price itself is a reflection of all available information, then the investor themselves cannot have access to all of that information. It's, it's they're bounded, um, their cognition is bounded, and therefore, okay. they themselves can only infer based on what the, the asset does, what information it must be reflecting. So trying okay. to predict it in advance from what you know is, is bound to fail because of you know, bounded rationality, bounded cognition. I'm trying to think of things I've heard investing types say, you know, like adages you might see and I really don't have anything intelligent here. Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, the three letter, I don't, I don't, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm kind of absorbed through osmosis of these general concepts from my father, but I did not ever study them, so I never learned terms for them. I mean, it, it might be stonks go boom. Stonks go boom? I said stonks. Stonks. Oh. <laughs> they do indeed go boom. I mean, <laughs> Um, impossible to beat the market. So like the market always wins. That could be it, yeah. I... You always lose. Timers always lose. <sighs> Traders yeah. always lose. I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, impossible to beat. I feel like, you know, there's going to probably be some level of rephrasing in, in that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm feeling... So my first thought was that, well, there's... I'm okay. Generally, when people do beat the market, the counter argument is that they were just lucky and that over time they will regress to the mean. Um, okay. So regression to mean might be a possibility here. Yeah. I mean, doesn't seem like a, a good, the exact fit, but I don't have anything better. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. Do you want to just go with it? Sure. Okay. Yeah, we're going to uh, lock in regression to mean. Afraid that's not what we're looking yeah, for here. I'm shocked. Troy. <laughs> This is the efficient market hypothesis. That is the efficient market hypothesis. I will give you my warning now before we get to the 
much harder questions that this was the category that I knew the least about going into. In fact, I remember falling asleep during my one finance class during my MBA. So <laughs> I will not have much to comment on other than to say, good job, Troy. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear this described as a pseudoscience, I think of Michael Jordan and I took that personally. <laughs> All right, we are on to Yogesh's final question and the last of the not too difficult questions. This can be stolen by Victoria and Troy. Social psychology is one of several academic disciplines that has been heavily borrowed by business school scholars looking to make a quick buck. A prime example of this is what psychologist turned marketing guru who authored the best-selling book, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion and its several companion works. If I had started my doctoral work at ASU one, one year earlier, he might not yet have retired and could theoretically have been my dissertation advisor. So there are two people who come to mind immediately, and you may know whether one of these people is actually a psychologist. When I hear like best-selling marketing guru, I think Seth Godin. He did yeah. like that purple, purple cow book and everything. The yeah, other yeah. one is, is Tim Ferriss, who I think is maybe describing him as a marketing guru is slightly askew. So I've heard I've heard of the, this book rings a bell, but okay. the the name the name is not something that it's not Dan Ariely, is it? I don't think so. I don't think it is either. I mean, the f- the first name that you mentioned, Seth like, Godin. Yeah, that sounds like a relatively good guess. If he definitely we, has written a lot of very popular marketing books. Yeah, um, I don't know about his background before he got into that. You know, sure. Yeah. And it says might not have retired yet and could theoretically have been my dissertation advisor. So does that mean this is somebody who is older and then moved into that as a sideline? Or does it mean that it's somebody who is younger, didn't really find academia convivial and you know made a bunch of money doing doing marketing writing and, and then left? I could see that going either way. Seth Godin was definitely writing books when I was like doing freelance stuff. So that would have been like 15, 20 years ago. I think that's the way I lean. And, and if it's if it's somebody who's better known as a social psychologist, I don't know that I have a whole lot here. Yeah, I don't really have a deep bench here to, uh, to guess from. And because it's a specific name, I feel like if either of us don't have a ton ton to go off of, like, I feel like your, your gut here, your inclination is, is like, worth pursuing you want, I think you want to give it a shot yeah let's give it a shot I mean I feel, I feel like I should know the name of that actual book but it's not it's not pinging for me okay we're gonna try Godin okay Seth Godin is definitely a famous scholar in this area but not the one we are looking for Yogesh do you know a bunch of boxes over in there which have a bunch of my books I haven't taken out the box uh, and I was wondering if during that deliberation I kind of started to look through them and thought maybe I could pull this book out because I'm pretty sure it's in there. Um, I decided that would make too much noise. Um, not really worth working up a sweat in this kind of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, my, my original guru from whom I learned social influence and persuasion was Elliot Aronson. But you say ASU and the guy at ASU who is really famous was Bob Cialdini. 
Yes, Robert Cialdini is the ASU laureate who has penned that book, as well as several others, which I, of course, have on my shelves. And it's, I did not think to bring one out for show and tell either, but, uh, <laughs> but it's good to know that there's some copies out there because it has sold over 200 million copies in various languages. And it's definitely one of the seminal works on persuasion. If you're all interested in the topic, I strongly, strongly recommend it. And so that is points for Yogesh. All right. And at the end of the round of not too hard questions, I have a very close match. Victoria with 6.1, Yogesh with 7.1, and Troy with 7.4. The actual score at this point was Victoria 5.1, Troy 7.4, and myself 9.1. We now move into the somewhat hard questions. This is your chance to steal from Victoria. And so Yogesh and Troy, you are up. Yeah, Most people think of the are, Italian. These are um, four points for a steal, three points for your own question, two points for a bonus. Cool. Okay. Most people think of the Italian version of champagne as Prosecco. But the sparkling wine that is actually made in the most similar process is what beverage from the Brescia province? <sighs> I feel like, again, I feel like Victoria, like, has surgically found <laughs> through, 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 like, so much experience quizzing with me, like, what my most acute weaknesses are. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I could say the same about you, so. <laughs> but but this does track with her past appearance. She's pretty much, you know, this is like the 27th episode now, and she's pretty much the only one who's strategically chose not just topics that she was good at, but things that <laughs> her opponents would not know. Really? But, yeah. That struck me as the only way to go. <laughs> yeah, right. I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think we may have been onto something calling you the super villain before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Victoria generally plays for the same team as me. <laughs> 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 well, I remain an impartial judge. I will chime in that some of us in the writing room were surprised that nothing related to biomedicine came up as one of the categories. And perhaps this is the reason why. It, it was so, so like my last couple of things out were either I was going to do like a particular Japanese author that I really like, which again, would, would have been kind of a, um, <laughs> an, another not nice topic. And, and then, yeah, I did think about doing something biomedicine related, but ultimately kind of, mm, I felt like this was better defensively, maybe not better offensively. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I did, for, for a previous appearance, she did have a, you know, that kind of topic. And I did look into it a bit because of that. And also my mother's a doctor, so I have some you know, limited knowledge there. So probably sticking with alcoholic beverages was the right choice. <laughs> I, I was going to go very different from my previous topic if I had gone yeah. All right. So like, I, I suppose I'll start off with like things I know. So like, I know like Osti, for this instance. It's going to take a long time. <laughs> <laughs> like Osti is like an Italian sparkling drink, but I, I feel like that's like Northern Italy, like not, not Brescia. Like this is like, like around like Turin, that area of, of the country. But Beyond that, like like tracking to like this specific thing, Brescia sparkling wine, I just don't have anything. Yeah, I don't know what, what very, you're thinking. I was very proud of myself. I think on yesterday's Jeopardy or a recent one, uh, 
the question of something about like a, a you know a place that sparkling wine comes from in the Piedmont region. And I was able to figure, I was able to say Asti just because I've come across that word in crossword puzzles where it's always clues with the Piedmont. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know any about, I, I thought it was a place, but I didn't know it was a beverage. But I, li- I literally have nothing better. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's <laughs> not prolong the misery here. All right, we'll go with Asti. Asti is not what we're looking for here. Victoria? So I'm actually not sure. I think it's one of two things, but I think the one that is, I think the one that is more likely to be correct is Frizzante. Is that correct? Frizzante is also not correct. Uh, From my research, what I found is French Accorda is what is considered the Italian version of champagne. I'm going to have to get my hands on some of that because that sounds good. (laughs) Yes, I <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I'm in Pennsylvania, so you know what I can obtain at my local wine store is is really fairly limited. Well, I I will tell you that shipping has become very popular during this pandemic, and you can get almost anything sent to anywhere. So if you it's, are, it's actually even interested. loosened up a little bit in Pennsylvania. They're there you go. they're not. Most places won't send to Pennsylvania because it's illegal, but uh, there's ways and ways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Remember, you are being recorded. You are being recorded. So this may be used against you. I just said that there exist ways. I didn't say that I had ever used any of those ways because law-abiding citizen. And with that, we move on to Troy's question, which can be stolen by Victoria and Yogesh. Let me make sure very quickly that I'm not accidentally posting the answer. And it doesn't seem like I am, so we should be good. What Spice Girls promotional single that was described by Vulture magazine as throwing shade at the recently departed Jerry Hallowell is one of only three songs on the album Forever, not to include Mel C, a.k.a. Sporty Spice, as a writer. The other three girls, along with Rodney Jerkins, Fred Jerkins III, and LaShawn Daniels, all receive writing credits. I see. Well, this is one, of your, one of your topics is Rodney Jerkins. <laughs> In, indeed, yes. That's fabulous. Um, so, so that's why this is resembling a nightmare ascending quad from Pups. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm trying to think if I know any songs off of Forever. I don't actually think I do like I think all the Spice Girls songs that I know are, are off of Spice like you know everybody else who was 15 in 1996 um I know that the musical based on them is called Viva Forever so maybe it's Viva or something yeah I think this is one even if I had the magical ability to call in Alex as a consultant he might struggle because I mean you'll know all the famous songs but the, the album cuts from uh Spice Girls may not even be in his wheelhouse much less mine but so Jerry Hallwell was ginger. Ginger, right? yes. Okay, not the only ginger. But I mean, if it, if they said throwing shade, like I doubt that I doubt that ginger's actually in the name. Like I have a feeling that it would be a little bit more subtle. Yeah. yeah. Not sure. And yeah, like I'm not even kind. Of, I don't even have a list of titles like in narrow in on. So now I'm trying to. So like the only Spice Girls songs that I can name are there's Wannabe, there's Two Become One, there's Spice of Your Life. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think we have exhausted my Spice Girls knowledge. <laughs> right. So I, I'm now in, in Harvest Moon territory, which is where I'll now call it, where I try and take a title from scratch. That's a name I've just coined. Okay. Well, in that case, I think our only chance would be if Ginger's in the name. And if it is in the name, then what could it be? 
what do you call throwing shade at Jupiter? I have nothing. I have let's, literally nothing. Let's make something better off without Ginger it. snap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Snapping at Jupiter. There you go. Just call it snap or something. Sure. That sounds okay. like a, you know, catchy name and it's something that could go with ginger and, you know, oh snap. Okay, sure. Let's try that. Snap. I love that answer and wish it were correct, but sadly <laughs> it is not what I'm looking for. Troy, do you know? So I believe on this album that Rodney Jerkins produced the first three tracks, something like that, first three or four. And there's the single Holler, which in my opinion is one of Dark Child's greatest productions. I love that song. Anyway, um, <laughs> which I just said on a recording. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And then there was another single, Let Love Lead the Way, that was also produced by Dark Child. There's a third song on that album that I don't know what it's called. <laughs> so, uh, all right, we'll just say Holler. I know that it's wrong, but I don't know the, the name of this other song, so we'll say Holler. You named a lot of songs on the album Forever, but you didn't name either of the two I'm familiar with. Goodbye, which was the band's first single without Jerry Hollowell. And then Tell Me Why, a more vindictive track that was planned as their second release. Plans were quickly scrapped in 2001, and the song was never released as anything more than a promotional single. But Tell Me Why is the first song that does not have Mel C credited as a writer in addition to the Jerkins at all. All right. And now we are back to a question that can be stolen from Yoga. I also might have thought that the category was songs that share their titles with Beatles songs. <laughs> I figured that I figured that Rodney Jerkins being in both was too specific for it not to be like the connection. All right, Victoria and Troy, here you go. One of, if not the only, naturally ginger Bond girls was Helga Brandt, played by Karen Dorr in You Only Live Twice. She fell tragically to her death inside an extinct volcano located on what specific island? Okay, I actually have a somewhat intelligent thought on this one. Oh, please elaborate. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm pretty sure that Baron Samity was the villain from You Only Live Twice. That's like named after a, a voodoo loi. So could the yeah. answer be Hispaniola? Oh, yeah, that's great. Like there's like a Haitian connection there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that, that, I don't know that I have anything else, but... I love that. That fits like very neatly into a trivia question. So let's try it. Let's give Go it a for shot. It. Yep. Hispaniola. All right. They've locked in with Hispaniola. Yogesh, what do you think? I feel privileged to have that very rare experience of watching Victoria Gross be completely wrong about something. <laughs> it's not that rare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Baron Somebody was a villain in Live and Let Die which took place in a fictional country called San Monique. You Only Live Twice took place in Japan. So yeah, the volcano base is very famous, a huge set designed by Ken Adams, one of the most biggest, most influential sets in Hollywood cinema history. And of course, the very famous scene in which she's crossing the bridge and Lofeld presses a button and she falls into the pool of piranhas. Now what island it's on? That's a good question. Yeah, I, I, it's been a while since I, really deep dive on that one. I, I, even, I read the book, but the book has a completely different plot. It's also set in Japan, but it's uh, completely different in plotting. Probably ha it's probably not one of the big four major islands, because it's, it felt like it was a little bit, it was a way off. And I remember how they, they found it, that like, 
then it floated out and the people on it were dead. And that was why they But I'll probably just end up trying to fraud some kind of Japanese sounding item name. Let's try Tajima. Well, this is still the hard category, but not the super hard category. The volcano layer known as the headquarters for Spectre only appears on screen in this film, though it makes an appearance in the 2004 video game GoldenEye Rogue Agent. An establishing shot of Mount Shinmodaki is in Kyushu, which was used in the film. Its primary role in the film was a launching point for the Bird One spacecraft. So Kyushu is what we were looking for. Okay, so I should have just gone with the one and try and one and four guess which island. That would have worked in this case, yes. All right, that takes us back to Victoria's middle difficulty question. What six-letter word has been replaced by the letter X in this excerpt from IGN.com's Guide to Stardew Valley? The X bug layer is an area inside the sewers accessible during the Dark Talisman quest. It features many X grubs and X flies, but has no artifacts and will not let you forage. You may find it helpful to know that one, this word is often used to describe real drosophilia flies used in scientific research, and two, unlike Yogesh's usual solve for X questions, the decision to use the letter X as the variable was not entirely arbitrary. Okay, so drosophila flies are commonly known as fruit flies. Right. Latin name is Drosophila melanogaster. Yeah. Melanogaster means what, black stomach maybe? That, that sounds right. So Drosophila are known for having a fairly small number of chromosomes. And his statement about the letter X made me think of chromosomes. Yeah, 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 same, same here. Yeah, could it be related to something, something to genetics? Like that seems to be the, the pathway. <laughs> Words often used to describe the I don't know too much about them. They have obviously very short generations, which makes it useful for scientific research. Like genome, or I don't know that that doesn't that doesn't really roll off the tongue. Hybrid. Hybrid. That's not bad. Oh, X. Could it, could it be mutants? Oh, oh. So you're thinking of Professor X from the? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. X Men. I see. I like that connection. It is six letters. It is genetics related. Mutant bug layer is means of defeating many mutant grubs and mutant flies that have no artifacts and will not be so This word is often used to describe real disorder. Okay, so when you do reading of Drosophila flies, presumably any new trait that pops up is considered a mutation. And I remember actually my my eleventh grade biology teacher, Dr. Pine, telling us that. The word mutation is sometimes used to describe the product of a mutation, but he said that the better word for that is mutant. So mm. you definitely could use the word mutant to describe a fly if it is one that has a de novo mutation that occurs during breeding. Are there any other six letter like genetics related words that could fit? Hi- hybrid, that, I, I like that too. Yeah, but your your point about the letter X being connected in multiple ways to to mutant is yeah, it's very really compelling. I'm really strongly leaning toward mutant for that reason. Do you want to go for it? Yeah, sure. All right, J- Jason, we'll go with mutant. I did not expect that you would be able to harvest moon yet another one, uh, so <laughs> I don't have a uh, bonus part for this one. Uh, but right. uh, but uh, we'll see what that happens. Was well solved, though. That was very good. That was well solved. Thanks. And adding four points to Troy and Yogesh now. 
All right. The next question is for Troy. And so Victoria and Yogesh have a chance to steal. In technical analysis, what shape is defined as a pattern that has a short real body that is vertically centered between long upper and lower shadows? It represents indecision about future direction of the stock and neither buyers nor sellers have the advantage. So I remember my dad had a book about this stuff when I was a kid. And I read it and made very little sense of it, but it, it involved like drawing the graphs. And so when I draw this out on my paper, it kind of looks like this when I draw that description, which to me kind of looks like, eh? <laughs> and the whole indecision thing would kind of go with a shrug. Hmm. I thought there, I knew there was something that's like a teacup or something, but I think that's, it's not gonna be centered. So, I mean, I mean, it's going to be something that looks a little bit like this. I don't know if you're holding up the part with the camera. There we go. Like the, this, this okay. little shape at the bottom there. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's going to, the graph is going to look something like that. Ah. Yeah. It does just kind of look like a shrug. It could also be like a, a tableau or a plateau. Um, yeah. I think a plateau, I, I would think it's like going to be higher relative to the things around it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's just my intuition. It's not necessarily correct. Yeah, when we don't know the answer, we just kind of have to you know, build on, take, having, generate intuitions and see which ones can be built on. Yeah. I'm looking at just to see if there's anything else that comes to mind about what that could be. I'm not thinking of anything. But to me, it does kind of look like, uh huh? Yeah, I mean. And, and I wonder if indecision could be a clue there. Any other words that mean indecision? In, something that would represent indecision and yet also be a tangible enough thing to be the name of a, of a visual pattern. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, because I've, I've certainly, I'm not familiar with any geometric shapes called shrug. Yeah. But, I mean, my, if, I'm, if I'm thinking of the right thing, which again is based on like a book I would have read when I was like nine, these are not things that have technical names or things that have names that are like the graph kind of resembles something that's like naming constellations. I see. Okay. I mean, that, that, that might also be why I wouldn't have, because, you know, I, I grew up with, my father literally had the, I would say he had the television on CNBC, but actually this goes back far enough that he actually had it on FNN, the predecessor to CNBC. So I've, you know, grown up around all hearing all of these terms, um, but you know, yeah. I, I could, I could see it being something I wouldn't have heard of if it's being named that way. So yeah, sure, I'll, I'll follow you on that. Okay. Um, so, I mean, especially since I don't think we have anything else. Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything else. Okay. Yeah, I know in terms of shape, I know like spider is definitely a term, but I think that's something similar to an index fund. A spider is, is um, I think it is a fund of funds. Okay. If yeah. I remember correctly. As I, as I repeatedly told my students, aggregation decreases randomness. So that's the, the principle behind funds and then the principle behind more funds is basically the more aggregation you do, the less randomness you're subject to, so the less risk you have in the portfolio. Okay. So you, you want to go for shrug? Sure. Okay. We're going to try shrug. Because this is so outside of my wheelhouse, I was sadly not clever enough to cue shrug from the word indecision. Troy, do you know what I'm looking for? I believe this is called doji. So in my research, I actually found that doji are a slightly different shape because it has a small upper and lower shadow that looks like a cross or a plus sign. 
but what I'm looking for here is called a spinning top candlestick. Oh, yeah, we were never going to look into that. Yeah, you could have like told us it was a clue weapon and we still would have been guessing. <laughs> I don't know. Doji was the first thing that came up for me and it said that this is distinct from Doji. So that was actually going to be the bonus question had they managed <laughs> to steal this from you. We were not going to steal this from him. I might, I might have guessed Doji as the name of the Japanese island though. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a meme. All right, that takes us to the Yogesh social psych question. A study in the January 2021 issue of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology confirms the unsurprising correlation between socioeconomic status and feelings of belonging in higher education. What may be surprising is that the relationship is fully mediated by what activity. In other words, a lack of doing what that would not have any obvious ties to money could explain the reason why people from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds feel out of place in higher education. Can I ask for clarification? Yeah. So, so you were saying in the question that the people from lower SES backgrounds are the ones who are not doing the activity in question. Is that correct? Correct. So the people from lower SES are not doing something and as a result of that, they feel lower belongingness in higher education. Okay. So I'm trying to think. I'm actually curious to hear what you think first, Troy. Man, I'm, <laughs> I'm struggling here. Like the first thing that jumped out to me is like paying for their education. So like the assumption that they're like financial aid or scholarship is the but reason. But that would that have like, obvious ties to money. Well, oh, sure, sure. So before I started my current job, I was working at a medical school kind of as a kind of jack of all trades kind of person. I started doing education research and then moved into kind of just special projects and other stuff. And there are a lot of initiatives that, that medical schools and post-secondary schools do to try to increase recruitment and retention from people from underrepresented backgrounds of all kinds. And like, I know that one of the things that is most commonly identified in terms of retaining students and faculty from underrepresented backgrounds is mentorship. Mm. Um, but in this case, it's the students doing it. So it's not. Yeah. What if it's drinking? That's an interesting thing. And like something I, I thought of is like fraternity, sorority type things, yeah. like part partying related. Drink, drinking is an interesting thing. I mean, I don't think it would be something along the lines of sex because I, I, I think that's a little more cross-cutting economically. But if you're somebody who really needs to keep up your scholarship or you're somebody who's working on top of your education, you're probably likely to be doing a lot less partying than... Yeah, that that's... That's good. I mean, it does have some ties to money, is, is, is the reservation, because it is an expensive hobby. True. Um, and any obvious ties to money, which maybe could go back to sex or dating or something like that, where that would be a little bit less mediated by finances. Fully, fully, fully mediated. mediated. Yeah, like it's an interesting... Like 100% of the relationship yeah. is... Yeah, fully mediated is a... Is a it is very interesting. interesting wording, exactly. Like something that's like central or like essential to like mm -hmm. collegiate life. Yeah. Yeah. But 
it's probably not like belonging to a fraternity because that does have very obvious ties to money. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. It's probably not like the way you commute or where you live because those, those all come down to money. Yeah. Um, is it something you do in the classroom, you know, where everybody is, it's maybe something to do with the way that people participate in classes or the way they. Yeah. Yeah. Like something that would like accent or like, like something that would like, give away socioeconomic status, but yeah. is not, you know, necessarily tied to money. So particular, particular games or hobbies. Yeah. Shopping at Whole Foods. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, so it, it's probably not something along the lines of going to church or being religious. Cause that's something that cuts weird ways in terms of class. Yes, yes, yeah. Using email. Uh, being on social media that's interesting i mean i guess i mean the entry there is like having a computer or like a phone and internet connection so i guess you could say that's sort of tied to money sort of but i mean but it's sort of like a utility in some ways right i think it's very hard to be in higher education these days and not have access to it yeah yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think it's basically impossible. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, anything that's free that you could do on a computer, you know, in terms of not having a monthly sure. fee or not having. True. Not, I, I, I like, I like this. So drinking, sex, social media, dating. Yeah. Uh, particular hobbies or interests. The way one speaks, maybe. Yeah. The social media thing is, I like that. I think I'm okay with it too. I, I don't. I'm curious, like how much research has been done on that. I'm guessing a lot because it's so central to life now. Yeah. And it is January 2021. Now, I mean, the fact that it's fully mediated by that activity. Yeah. I don't, you know, like my my daughter's school is is something like 85 or 90 percent economically disadvantaged, and the kids are on social media. You know, it's just the way it is. Yeah. So it, it's something that people of lower SES backgrounds don't do that people who are, it's probably watching Jeopardy. <laughs> I actually kind of think I'm going back to drinking, partying. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't, think that, I, I don't think that people of <sighs> voting. That's, that's great, actually. That's really good. That's not in any way tied to it's not tied financial to status. It is. And, to, and it is connected. Rates of voting are connected to yes. to class, especially among younger people. I believe. Yeah. <laughs> what a, what a question this is. Whoever wrote this, like I know. <laughs> you did. You did well. Thank uh, you. <laughs> voting. That's really good. Like. I mean, it's hard for me to. I mean. It's hard for me to think of things that, yeah, that 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 college students who are struggling for money don't do that people who aren't struggling for money do that does not directly connect with money. Yeah, yeah. You want to yeah. go for it? Let's go for it. Go for it. Okay, Jason, we're gonna try voting. Brilliant, but no. Not okay. brilliant if it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I'm not familiar with this actual study, so I can't draw an actual holiday. Do the same thing you guys are doing. Laterally left into it on it. And yeah, I mean, mediation is a claim about causality. Statistical mediation is basically a way of 
using correlations to make causal claims. And if that sounds like something that social scientists should never do, it is something social scientists should never do, and it shouldn't really be published in JPSP, but that's the world we're in. Some of us would be unemployed if we couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and in many ways, what, what dry, I mean, I, it was amusing uh, for his comment that, oh, this must be studied because it's uh, important. It, it underestimates the, <laughs> the spotlight effects in, uh, in, in academia when things are studied, not because they're important, but because other people have studied them or methods exist for studying them or it can be fair, fair. turn it into a publication if you study it. Yeah, so, okay, so, you know, one whole category of things that can be chopped away is personality because of the phrasing, what activity. So personality traits are things that generally people have, not things that they do. And so this is something people actively do. And, you know, yeah, your reasoning, I mean, it seemed to be along the right line, something that broadly would correlate with socioeconomic status, something that would likely play some kind of causal role in feelings of belongingness, but also somewhat surprising just to get into a top journal. It has to be a little counterintuitive. So I like the idea of, of partying because on the one hand, it's intuitive that that would be tied to belonging, but it's also counterintuitive in that like, hey, something that's bad is good for you. And, and kind of plays into that, you know, it's all about telling a good story and that idea that like rich kids have an advantage because of their non-academic activity that will facilitate their doing well by academic benchmarks. That's just exactly the sort of like plausible yet counterintuitive narrative that social science likes. Yeah, so I don't have any direct knowledge. Drinking seems like it would be present at all levels of socioeconomic status, but partying, that one seems like it could vary because if you are working additional jobs to support yourself or if you're a non-traditional student, if you're raising kids, all these kinds of things would make you less likely to go to parties, but people who are from high socioeconomic status usually are just coming to college right after finishing high school. They live on campus. They don't have other responsibilities. Those are, you know, the big partiers. So I'll, uh, I'll lock that in, partying. So you are all thinking about things that would be very interesting studies if someone were to choose to do them. And I wanted to include something that was from a very recent study, since Yogesh, of course, spent many years in the social psychology field, and I figured he wouldn't be at a huge advantage with a study that came out just a couple of weeks ago. But Trawalter, Hoffman, and Palmer found that people from low SES backgrounds spend less time in public spaces, which lead them feeling isolated. They don't necessarily lack access, but they often feel discouraged from using public spaces, considering how many people from low SES backgrounds come from urban areas where public parks are more common hangouts than private residences. This finding may cause future researchers just to investigate how and why poor people feel so discouraged from using public spaces once they're on campuses. So the answer we are really looking for here is using public space on campus or anything along those lines, which I thought was kind of an interesting finding, though definitely not as sexy as partying, drinking, or voting. Uh, all right, on to the next Victoria question, which has a chance to be stolen by Troy and Yogesh. Simo Haua may be the most deadly sniper ever, allegedly recording 505 kills in 100 days. According to an anecdote from knitter and historian Nancy Bush, he was so successful because of his multi-layered mitten glove system, hand-knit, at a finer gauge than commercial knits of the time. This allowed for greater dexterity and prevented his hands from going numb during reloading, unlike his enemy's bulky single layer. What was Hawa's nickname? 
So this is 100% something I've read before. And so now I have that unpleasant task of trying to dredge something out of my memory, knowing I've definitely read it before. And I, I believe it's a two word nickname, but I believe the first word is white. Of okay. course, the two things that popped into my head right away were white angel and white death. Well, looking at his name, he's clearly Finnish. So I don't know if that's helpful. Uh... Yeah, he was definitely, I think he fought in like the winter war, the continuation war, or mm. one of the anti-Soviet wars. Yeah, that would, that would track. Yeah, this is someone who's on like my long list of people to write blog entries about, but because he's already relatively well-known among military history buffs, it wasn't super urgent to write about him. Well, there's a, a lot of the question dedicated to like the inner workings of this. So maybe it's something related to that, like a number or part of like, like the construction or something that is like a parts of a whole type thing. Yeah, it just, I mean, I, I think this may be a way of tying the question into Victoria's, you know, area by sure. emphasizing the knitting part, which is, which is interesting, you know, it's, it's nice to go a little bit field from the, the topic, but we're still anchored to it some way. Yeah. But this is, I'm just, I'm worried I might be mixed, because there are a few other famous snipers. There was one female sniper who I think was Russian, who also had a memorable nickname. And I don't remember what that was. So now I'm worried. I'm, maybe that's where the angel part came from. I don't know. But Could it be anything related to Finland or Finnish history or, you know, Finnish mythology, something like that? That's, yeah, I mean, is he the swan of Tuanoa? Right. <laughs> <laughs> the white lemon canon or something, right? Yeah, it's just my mind is not tying it to... My mind, like, but it's just again, I'm, I'm using like metacognition here because my mind is not tying it to culture or history. My mind is just tying it to like poetic nicknames that evoke, you know. Sure. Yeah. I don't know if I'll do, I mean, white death seems kind of logical. It definitely, you know, would have been, it definitely would have been a war that was fought under snowy conditions. Sure. Well, I feel like you're the one with the sort of more specific knowledge here. So trust your gut wherever it leads you, because I, I feel like I'm, I'm not going to be much more help. <laughs> All right, let's lock in white death. The bad news for Victoria is that they've done it again. Uh, <laughs> white death is correct. The good news for Victoria is that Susanna provided multiple parts to this question. <laughs> so there is a bonus for you to show off and get half the points. The outermost mitten layer was virtually impenetrable because it was constructed with a single needle technique that originated in Scandinavia. What is the name of this craft? I think this has got to be null binding. You are correct. Null binding <laughs> isn't technically knitting, but many no, people but refer to it. It, it is one of the two things that is most often considered to be the historical antecessor to knitting. So, And it's from Norway, I think, as far as we know. Very good. For the record, yep. unlike most of the other questions, which came from Wikipedia or various internet research, this came from the mind of Susanna. She, she relayed a Nancy Bush story who is a personal friend of hers, which is I, pretty amazing. I will also point to right behind me, you'll see a book called Knitting Vintage Socks by Nancy Bush. I think I There you go. I guess she's a personal friend shelf. of yours too. This is, this is the knitting shelf. Over here, these are <laughs> in the magazines. So <laughs> the bins are full of yarn. 
Yeah, you definitely gave us the question of that pair. You gave us the question that was accessible to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was intentional. <laughs> okay. Troy's question. All right. Chance to Steal goes to Victoria and Yogesh. In a 2017 GQ article, a musician and style icon described some of his nascent fashion projects, some personal, some publicly available. These included bootleg Anita Baker t-shirts he drew with a marker, some reading, I Need a Baker, and a collaboration with Trey Torn that redesigned the classic Nylite tennis shoes. Name the musician. 2017. So it does mean it's probably not going to be somebody like Lil Nas X who is just emerged in the last couple of years. So it's going to be somebody describes me nascent fashion projects, some publicly available. Who has a fashion line? Um, yeah, this is, this is almost certainly, almost certainly not helpful, but I think in, in episode eight or so, I asked a question about the rapper's style that included a quote from a GQ interview from around that time. I think that's not helpful because I imagine GQ will probably interview every famous yeah, here. but I mean, he, he's somebody who I would think of as having a fairly distinctive personal style. Yeah, he definitely markets clothing through his website. That is compelling. So Anita Baker, kind of old school R&B. It wouldn't surprise me if this is if this is a hip hop musician. It also wouldn't surprise me if it's somebody who's more along the R&B lines. Either way, I think is is entirely plausible. Do you know anything about nylite tennis shoes? I don't. I mean, well, they may be like the ones with the, I don't know. I had tree torns like in the 80s when I was a kid. And maybe that's what they were called. I mean, if that's if that's them, they were just like white canvas shoes with some leathery stuff on the sides. <sighs> Nothing that I think is going to like lean into the question. Style icon. I'm trying to think of like... See, I, I don't have time to read anything lately, um, but I do like to look at Go Fug Yourself when I have like, you know, time. And I'm trying to think of like who will show up to the opening of an envelope and look fancy or look interesting. Um, I don't think it's going to be Travis Scott. I'm as good with Chance the Rapper as anything. Yeah, I just, there is a specific type of shoe he wears and I want is New Era a type of shoe? Yes, I think. <laughs> We're sounding very with it. Yeah. Because I, <laughs> I know that like New Balance is a type of shoe. but I Yeah, that's definitely a brand. New Era yeah. is like definitely a thing. But I don't know if it's like a brand, like a company in itself, or if it's a, I think it's a company in itself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be very helpful here. I wait would... a minute. Wait a minute. I need a baker. I'm thinking if you take the letters of Drake out of there, what do you get? You get I-N-E-E-D-A. And I can't anagram that into <laughs> anything useful. I was kind of hoping like that, you know, you pull out the letters of Drake and maybe they're different colors and... Um... You get Deneb, which is the name of the star. No, <laughs> no you, you end up with I-N-E-E-B-A. Yeah. I-N-E-E-B-A. yeah. Um... I don't know that I would really consider Drake a style icon, really. Anyhow, I think I like your answer better. Okay, I don't feel bad about anchoring you to something that's probably not right, but I literally have nothing better. So I don't either. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> so a chance to rapper. 
So Chance the Rapper wears nice kicks, which are from Nike. But Troy, do you know who we're looking for here? Yeah, it was Andre 3000 that did the collaboration with Trey Torn. Susanna is very proud that, yes, you were able to get to Andre 3000. So I am crediting Troy with the points on this one. Well done. Thank you. Great question, hey. Susanna. You can, you can pull uh, Andre from I Need a Baker also. <laughs> no points and no, no time to spend thinking about it. But out of curiosity, do you know the name of this short-lived Uber prep menswear line? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've seen it in GQ, but I, yeah, I don't remember the name. I have not heard this before either. And I just moved my page away, but I'm going to pull it back up because it was... Very interesting, I thought. It is called Benjamin Bixby. Yes, yes, yes. Now Troy and Victoria have a chance to steal from Yogesh. This actress was once called a character actress in the best sense of the term. Her red hair was not on display when she voiced a farmyard character in 1973's animated adaptation of Charlotte's Web. However, at the suggestion of Charles Lawton, she did create a touring one-woman show called The Redhead using source material as varied as James Thurber and the Bible. She was nominated for an Emmy three times, yet her lone win came not for the series in which she performed a signature role, but for a single episode guest spot on Wild Wild West. Who is she? I think this is Agnes Moorhead. That sounds great. <laughs> I'm, the, the, the Emmy thing rings a bell. The Emmy yeah. thing absolutely rings a bell. I like that a lot. And she had a signature character. Like, yeah, that's... Yeah. So I, I think that's the answer. Let's go for it. Okay. You go ahead, Ag Victoria. Agnes Moorhead. Question purposely left out her most notable roles in her connections, her character's name on Bewitched, and her involvement with Orson Welles' Mercury players, including Citizen Kane. But Darren Stevens' meddling mother-in-law and Dora was, of course, played by Agnes Moorhead. Nice job. Was uh, what was the thing that led you to it? I, I may or may not have memorized... The Emmy winners. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I when I, I went through that, you know, the list of Emmy winners, and when I saw that, I actually like tracked down the episode and watched it. I was not generally not a fan of that show in general, and that episode reminded me why, because my immediate thought on like, <laughs> even by 60s standards, this is pretty sexist. Wow. But wait, Yogesh, you get a bonus question about a different redhead. Though she is an oh, I sent that <laughs> I sent that to Susanna in direct message. Uh, <laughs> though she is a natural redhead who even auditioned for the role of Ginger in the third Gilligan's Island movie and is credited as simply redhead for her work on Harper Valley PTA. What actress has appeared with black hair in nearly all of her on-camera performances, including the one time she hosted SNL in 1987? Well, that's interesting. Was she Gilligan's Island started in the mid 60s? So she would have been like probably in her 20s then. And yet the one time she hosted SNL was in 87, which means she would have been in her 40s at least. Simply redhead for her work on Harper Valley PTA. I thought Barbara Eden starred in that as a movie. I'm not sure about if it was spun off into a TV series, but I'm pretty sure. But yeah, Barbara Eden is known for having blonde hair, not black hair. So I think she was known in 1987. That's not an era that the early ones would think, you know. Yeah, if I had a long time to think about this, I would be more dumb. But in the interest of moving things along, having dark hair, I said that to once. Maybe she had a TV show at the time. 
Yeah, I'm not getting anything. Uh, Holly Draper. That is not correct. For Pride, do uh, Troy and Victoria think they can steal it? I do not. Yeah, not I, said the fly. <laughs> well, the character that she played was far more popular than she ever was, so much so that she was sued for stealing the look of Vampira. Oh. Interestingly, oh. Oh, Cassandra wow. Peterson posed nude on several occasions, but refused to do so while wearing the Elvira wig. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. On to the super hard questions. This one being for Victoria oh. and a chance to steal for Yogesh and Troy. Your grandfather is already dead when you arrive at his old farm plot in Stardew Valley. But as the game progresses, you can interact with him at the location called Grandpa's Shrine, where his ghost occasionally appears and evaluates your performance. You earn at least 12 points during this evaluation. You are rewarded with a special item called the Statue of Perfection, which is made entirely of what metal? We have a, a score check, by the way, going into the final item. Is the end of the round. Sure. I have a score at Victoria, 13.1. Yogesh, 15.1. Troy, 22.4. The actual scores at this point are Victoria, 11.1, Troy, 22.4, and myself, 17.1. I think my first thought here, your guess, was um, most expensive metal, maybe. like Platinum? But I th- I, well, I think it's palladium. Oh, right. Yeah. And beyond that, I'm not really sure where to go here. Yeah, I went down a rabbit hole once trying to find out what the most expensive metal was. It's hard to say because, like, to equalize it, you have to do, like, a price per ounce. But some of sure. these, there have never been an actual ounce of them in existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, like, among sort of, like, widely traded metals, I think palladium is the one that is the most expensive. But there may be others that, like, you know, have a nominal value that's higher, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I, I got to say, I'm, Grandpa's shrine, like metals related to ghosts. Well, cobalt literally means goblin. Exactly, right, exactly. I was going to say, short of like anywhere else to go, that's not a bad idea. I like how that was just like an unspoken communication between us. Like, well, you know, <laughs> metal ghost, obviously cobalt. <laughs> we'd, we'd be pretty good at this as a team, I think. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't sound too bad. Like any metals like related to like age or sort of like the elders in society, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if this were an earlier round, I would probably lean heavily toward platinum just because that's kind of the symbol of like the best, yeah. you know, like the platinum metal being better than gold metal. Yeah. But I mean, at this point, we might, we may as well, we're probably just guessing. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, I think we're shooting blanks here. Yeah, we just uh, hope. I like cobalt. I like it. Okay. Something else people often do on this podcast is wash their hand, like is, is uh, pass the burden to the other person to guess so they can <laughs> wash their hands responsibility. <laughs> so I'm going to take a try at doing that and let you have the guess. All right. I will guess using Yogesh's guess of cobalt. <laughs> <laughs> You're very successful at passing the buck, but not at answering the question. Uh, <laughs> Victoria, do you know? I don't think there was a backdoor into this question, but there is a counter in, there's a hidden counter in the code of Stardew Valley that that calculates how much of this metal you acquire during the game. It is not... Like that counter is not known to be used for anything. There's been speculation that there'd be some kind of like monkey's paw mechanic in a future update. It's iridium. It is iridium. And there is, in fact, a very oblique 
back door in. The first sentence contains an extremely obscure reference to the classic noir film DOA, in which stolen iridium is a major plot point. Oh, wow. That is wow, very well. oblique. Yeah, that is very some... oblique, but Yogesh is definitely an expert. Yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's so a lot of yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, iridium in Stardew Valley, and the Statue of Perfection is the most reliable way of getting it. Short of packing your backpack full of about five thousand bombs and going to the skull caves, <laughs> just in case that comes I'm, up. I'm taking taking notes, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> um, just so I'm 100 percent clear, in this final round, the points are six, five, and four, or six, four, and two. Six, five, and three. Six, five, and three. Okay, got it. Okay. And we move on to the question that can be stolen from Troy. Many day traders follow Granville's investment rules for buying and selling based on a 200-day moving average. The seventh rule concerns a signal to sell if the price rises and breaks the moving average. However, the moving average is still falling and the short-term price falls again below the moving average. What is the term for this type of signal? Rises and breaks the moving average. However, the moving average is still falling and the short-term price falls again below the moving average. Just trying to like draw this out. I mean, it sounds like it's, it sounds like it would be a signal that you'd want to avoid. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even, not even really parsing the question. Yeah. I'm still kind of struggling to parse the question even um, yeah, I mean, I, tr- I was trying to draw it out and like, you know, so you've got your, you've got your 200 day moving average at some point, you know, if the price rises above the moving average, that's a good time to sell. But overall the trend is downward. So that when you, so that the, the price falls again below the moving average, which means that maybe it's just an illusory gain, you know, kind of like the Will of Rogers paradox. I don't know. I have I have no way into this. Yeah. Okay. The moving average short-term price falls again below the moving average. I don't know. Yo-yo, maybe something that's up and then down. Yeah, that could be. I'm fine with that. I right. I don't think we're gonna just figure this out. All right. Let's try and fraud. Yo-yo. Uh, it is not yo-yo, Troy. So below the 200 price falls, breaks the moving average, then breaks again. I'm not 100% familiar with this method, but I think, is this a death cross? That is one of them, but that's not this one. This one is okay. a fake breakout. Okay. Okay, on to the Yogesh question. What alliterative theory put forth by Barbara Fredrickson tries to explain the evolutionary origin of positive emotions? Positive emotions, you've got joy, you've got happiness, you've got mirth. Evolutionary origins. So I'm thinking. I'm going to follow your lead here, Victoria, because I'm out of my depth with this one. Well, I mean, I kind of am too. I, I've read a little bit of like Christopher Bohm's evolutionary psychology work, but like not much. This is not a field I know a huge amount about, but I have a feeling. So it's an alliterative theory. We're looking for positive emotions, something like genetic joy or, you know, joy genetics. So, I mean, evolutionary origin, you're basically looking at something that basically says that we have been, there's some kind of feedback loop that has actually made changes in, in the genome of the population based on who is reproducing, who's living, who's dying. So could, could the second word be something like 
I mean, I'm trying to think of like words that represent like a progression, yeah. like evolution. So like, so you got like joy genetics, you've got like hereditary happiness, you've got, yeah. what are other positive emotions? Contentment? Satisfaction. Uh-huh. Elation, euphoria, I mean, evolution. Like most of, most of like, the evolutionary psychology type theories I can think of, it will probably not surprise you that most of them have to do with food history. Um <laughs> No, it, yeah. me. <laughs> it, it should not surprise you yeah. I mean, but there are things like you know man the hunter and yeah. um as a side got... note to listeners i once heard steve bonneman say that there is no food that victoria gross has never tried i'm celiac so that is like oh by definition not that's why i don't drink whiskey um <laughs> I was say, like gold-plated truffles and things i'm guessing she hasn't uh... well i have been to alinea so <laughs> Are you really? There, there actually, there actually was gold in in the meal. <laughs> it was delicious. Was there cobalt? There was not cobalt. <laughs> um, <laughs> there better not have been cobalt. I think that was on an episode of House, and it did not go well. It resulted in that pitcher breaking his arm. Um, I kind of like hereditary happiness best of what we have. Yeah, that fits. I'm looking at like the list of emotions, but I mean, I think it hits on it, it's positive emotions. It would go with evolutionary. It's alliterative. I think I like it. Yeah, I like it. Okay, we're gonna say hereditary happiness. It fits perfectly, but it is not correct. Yogesh. My main memory, actually, not my main memory of Barbara Fisher's work, but of, of her personally, I've seen her present at a conference with my my friend and colleague, who my friend throws herself a um. A, a partaker of um, consciousness-altering substances. And she, mm. she, after watching Barbara Fredrickson present, she was like, yeah, she, she's definitely a stoner. <laughs> but um, the main memory of her work is, uh, you know, that she had the positivity ratio, the idea that you're supposed to have like an optimal three positive acts for every negative one. And this was taken apart in a absolutely hilarious American psychologist article by a guy named Nick Brown and a couple other co-authors that basically was like, all of the math underlying this was clearly done by someone who doesn't know math at all. It's complete mathematical nonsense. <laughs> but, you know, I would say that quite a bit of the part of the psychology literature is, is built on nonsense, but they probably just tell me I need to take a more optimistic view or something like that. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so I didn't delve too much into this because it's one of those areas of the social psych. I just think it's it's ridiculous. But with an evolutionary social, again, just back into kind of prodding territory, like evolutionary psychologists love these catchy names of things like the sexy sun hypothesis, one of the popular ones. So the idea behind it would be that larger emotions make people more likely to reproduce and pass on their genes. You know, I'm just, again, really just kind of prodding here, but the the emotion literature has always been very heavily tied to the facial expression literature, especially through the work of like Carol Izard and Paul Ackman. So I'll try sexy smile. Hmm. Well, for many years, evolutionary psychologists struggled to explain positive emotions since they didn't trigger a specific response to stimuli the way negative emotions did. For example, fear is believed to have developed as a way for our cardiovascular system to read about blood to large organs to facilitate running away when we get the urge to flee a situation. On the other hand, joy has been shown to give people the willingness to agree to do anything, while serenity correlates with the desire to do nothing. So these emotions effectively trigger no specific actions. 
Fredrickson's theory posits that positive emotions open our awareness to a wider range of thoughts and actions than we typically would notice. Joy sparks the desire to play and be creative, while serenity sparks the desire to savor the moment. In essence, positive emotions broaden our mindsets and allow us to build greater resources than we otherwise would have. Hence, the broaden and build theory. I actually have heard of that now that you mention it. You know, when, you, when you were talking about face, I thought, I, I thought that it was going to be like that facial feedback hypothesis. Yeah, that's a bit older. That that, and alliterative as well. So another viable guess for sure. All right. On to Victoria's question to be stolen or possibly stolen, I should say. While Napa is home to many vineyards that specialize in sparkling wine, there are two family wineries known as much for their architecture as their grapes. Name either of the California labels where you can sample sparkling wine while touring an actual castle. So as someone who spends a lot of time in bars and doesn't even drink alcohol, I'm not exactly designing my vacations around a chance of Yes, I used to live in the Bay Area, and I've been to Napa a few times, but yeah, I don't really know, unfortunately. Yeah, the winery tour was not, that was not the top of my list. To, uh, to family winery. Do we know any family? I mean, there's the Coppola one, obviously, or Nibam Coppola, but do you know Mandavi. No, that's a thing. In terms of actual, the only, I was just reading about First Castle. I feel like that we, I would know if there was a winery there, though. Oh yeah, Hearst Castle though is the SoCal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we're gonna try Mondavi. Sure. All right, Mondavi. It is not. Victoria, do you know? So there are two California sparkling wines that I drink regularly. One of them I am positive is in Napa, and that's Moom Napa. That's the other one's Sharpenberger, but I don't I don't think they're there. I think they're maybe Sonoma. So I'm gonna say Moom. Uh, Moom. I'm not familiar with that one myself, so I can't comment too much. But the two that have castles are Domain Carneros, where I actually was last week, oh, and wow. Castillo de Amorosa. Okay. Were, were you doing research? <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's call it that. <laughs> Positive emotions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, on to the Troy question, which can be stolen by Victoria and Yogesh. The 2006 hip hop hit. Cry No More by Sharifa contains an interpolation of Soul Survivor by Young Jeezy and Akon, but it also samples what 1974 song by the Stylistics that was never released as a single. That name, the Stylistics maze, rings a bell. Yeah. Um, what did they do? Who did it? Didn't they did. I what now? I, I'm, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Yeah, can you hear me better? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay. Did they do Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time? That's the Delphonics. Delphonics, okay. But the stylistic yeah. did You Are Everything, right? You are everything. And everything. Not sure. I know they did. They, they did the song that got interpolated into Crazy in Love, Are You My Woman, Tell Me So. Oh, yeah. And they did one other that I'm having a hard time pulling. See, now I'm kind of wondering if they did a cover of Didn't I Blow Your Mind this time. Um. <laughs> Like I know the Delphonics did the original. Yeah, that's that's I'm doing. I probably just have a mental confusion of those. Yeah, but, but I mean it's. But I mean the the song I so I think it's I'm now I'm I can't believe I'm liking this because this is like the first song I ever downloaded off of Napster, um, <laughs> was uh, "You Are Everything," and I do want to say it was by the Stylistics. If if you feel confident about that, like 
I really doubt it's Are You My Woman, Tell Me So. And the other stylistic song that is like trying to work its way into my brain would be a single. Like it, it, it would be something that they would be explicitly known for. I mean, maybe they did the original version of No More Tears, which would tie into the name of the song, but I, I doubt that. I think the original was the one that got famous in 79 with like Barbara Streisand. And I, I vote we go with yours. I mean, it's, if it's a song that you know that is by the right band, I think that's better than anything. All right. This is still largely a shot in the dark, but yeah, let's try You Are Everything. Shot in the dark, and it remains in the dark. Try Hi, Future Yogesh here, and I just want to note that at this point I was thinking about something that Patty said to Darren back in episode 8, which is that if you can't think of a song that's a good plausible guess, just guess something that's a sentimental favorite of yours. You Are Everything by The Statistics has been one of my favorite songs since I first heard it in an episode of The Wonder Years I watched on Nick at Night as a teenager, and it was the first song I ever downloaded off of Napster. I think the Statue of Limitations expired on that, and I would very highly recommend listening to it if you aren't familiar with it. Okay, so yeah, You Are Everything is a stylistic song. This great. song, it is a great song. This particular single, I'm not super familiar with. Like Sharifa's big song with, with Dark Child was I Need a Boss with Ludacris around the same time. Sharifa, by the way, is, uh, is Buddy Guy's daughter, which is like one of my like favorite hip hop facts. Anyway, Soul Survivor is like a sort of minor keyed song. And it's sort of like a, you know, it's meant to be hard. Like it's meant to portray like Jeezy is like a drug dealer. So I'm guessing this is going to be like a minor key song. Unfortunately, my knowledge of the stylistics is like not commensurate with the level of this question. And so <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a minor key stylistic song. I think... Maybe maybe people make the world go round. Is that minor keyed? Uh, I can't I can't remember. There's you make me feel brand new, which is definitely not that. Betcha by golly wow, which again I think is like a like a like romantic type song. All right, let's go with people make the world go round. Well, you had plenty to choose from because during the seventies, the stylistics had twelve consecutive R and B top ten hits, but the miracle was not one of them. Dark Child selected this lesser-known song, The Miracle, for sampling on Sharifa's hit. One of the, one of the 20 or so most famous stylistic songs. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was tough, but it was a good question. I thought that one was particularly tough. I feel bad because I was hoping someone would get it because Susanna kind of anguished to come up with a replacement bonus question had someone get that one. So I do have this bonus question here. I can read it and then it can be cut for time if it's not relevant or I can just sort of post it and whatever you think is best. Well, I guess if you really like it, you may as, may as well quickly throw it out. Sure. In the early 1990s, Rodney Jerkins gained sudden attention for high-profile remixes, including ones for Vanessa Williams, Gina Thompson, and Aliyah. Sean Combs, aka P. Diddy, tried to sign Jerkins to a production deal, but Jerkins turned him down. I wanted to prove that I could make it on my own, he told Billboard, and he went on to prove just that. In 1995, he wrote, arranged, and produced five tracks that appeared on a smash hit 1997 album by a renowned diva who had just severed ties with her own longtime producer and manager, Sean P. Diddy Combs. That's Mary J. Blige. It is. Do you know the yeah. album as well? I'm trying. Th this is the album that this I can love that you. That, yes. Yeah, is on. Yeah, which is one of my favorite songs. And I'm trying to think of the name of that album. It's not MJB, 
and what's the 411 was her like debut record yeah i'm not sure uh, the album is called share my world share my world okay Hi, Future Yogesh here with a few clarifications. Are You My Woman, Tell Me So is the source of the brass sample used in Beyonce and Jay-Z's Crazy in Love. However, it was recorded by the Shy Lights, who are a completely different band from the Stylistics. Also, the R&B singer Sharifa is not related to Buddy Guy. Buddy Guy's daughter is a rapper who goes by Shauna. This is a Yogesh question, which can be stolen by the other two of you. SAG-AFTRA COVID-19 protocols for filming movies and TV shows were heavily influenced by the Hallmark original movie Christmas Tree Lane, which was the first film from a major network or studio to start production in the United States during the pandemic. The film was written and co-produced by what actress, who also played the lead role of Meg, a music teacher determined to save the titular Christmas Tree Lane shopping district from being demolished. The film's climax takes place at a benefit concert where Meg performs an original piece for piano and vocals called Christmas Will Never End. Okay, who were actresses who were trying to also be musicians? Who who would be in the Hallmark extended cinematic universe? <laughs> oh boy! I mean, I, I, I have seen a whopping I have seen a whopping okay. uh, one of these, and uh, there was a lot of champagne involved. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the name that's like cinematic or uh, synonymous with this, the Hallmark cinematic universe is Candace Cameron, right? Yeah, there's Lacey Chabert is in a lot of uh, a lot of those movies too, and I kind of like her better as somebody who might be wanting to show that she's. Didn't Jennifer Love Hewitt do like music stuff too? Briefly, she did. Yeah, she had like a hit song. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I know Shailene Woodley's done like some Christmas stuff for, but I think for Netflix, I don't know if they have like non competes. I, I do not know how that world works. <laughs> Vanessa Williams does she do those I'm guessing just like filming within the pandemic I would guess that it's probably like a younger person like you know like somebody somebody who would be less at risk for okay because Vanessa Williams is probably in her 60s right yeah so it could be somebody like I'm trying to think of people who have graduated fairly recently from Disney Oh, that's that's a good line of thought. So somebody like a Vanessa Hudgens or Oh yeah. Like Sabrina Carpenter or um Or like somebody like recently graduated from like a sitcom, like a young actress. Yeah. Like like the modern family actresses. So I thought that there might be some chance that you'd pick up on this from the other questions, but I'm being prompted by Susanna that I may have been a little bit too obtuse in not pinpointing that your guest's chosen category was redheaded actresses. I mean, I don't think you're obliged to let us know that, but redheaded. Okay. So who's young and has, I mean, Amy Adams is just too big to do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, Karen Gillan? That's not a bad idea, but she's probably too... Um, probably not going to be doing stuff in the U.S. during the pandemic. Correct, yeah. Allison Hannigan? Oh, I like that. She's definitely, like, in, like, the nostalgia sort of, like, lane, right? That would appeal to the Hallmark viewer. Yeah. That's not bad. I don't know that she does the music thing, but... Uh, like, I kind of have a feeling this is... It's not going to be somebody older, older, like you say, but... I, 
I kind of have the feeling this is going to be somebody in their 30s or 40s. I, I actually kind of don't think that you're going to cast a 21-year-old as the music teacher who's trying to save the town. It's going to be somebody who's a little bit more of an adult. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I like Allison Hannigan. Let's go with like, it. For lack of a better guess. Yeah, let's go with All right. it. All right, we'll try Allison Hannigan. I also like Allison Hannigan, but she is not the answer to this question. Uh, he'll catch to you now. Okay, so yeah, so first of all, I mean, if I were hosting and yeah, they, they hadn't, the contestants hadn't picked up on the redheaded theme, I would not have felt obligated to give it to them. But you are, you are the host. I had not at first, but then Susanna prompted me, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I did turn over hosting responsibilities to you, so you, you get the seniority here in making those calls. But anyway, yeah, I was also thinking on the same lines, you know, I, I knew it had to be a redhead. There were a few years ago I would have thought maybe Joanna Garcia, but I've been I follow her on Facebook and she seems heavily into raising a family now and not really doing other things. Yeah, Alison Hannigan did come to me, although I thought she did she seemed to be doing that magic show with Penn and Teller. But I mean, yeah, that that would be in, in her lane. But you, you've taken her off the table. Who else? Wendy Booth, maybe. And then I also thought like you like you did about kind of people who were graduating out of the Disney stable and maybe you know finishing up shows. Debbie Ryan, maybe a redhead, kind of darkish hair. Bella Thorne is generally, generally have red hair. But then, I mean, you're right, Victoria, that that does seem to sound like it's calling for someone a little bit older. But yeah, I don't, I've never, I don't think Wendy Booth has ever really done anything musically related. So maybe it is, maybe it is someone from Disney or Nickelodeon who's being pushed toward a multi-versatile career. Yeah, let's just try Bella Thorne. Thought about writing a Bella Thorne question, but I was worried that you might get canceled by your sponsors for that one. But there were two potential ways in. One is knowing what redheaded actress is a virtuoso on the piano, and the other is potentially oh, knowing Alicia Witt. It, it is Alicia Witt. Uh, oh. I don't think I can give you the points anymore, but uh, <laughs> that is the correct answer. And the other is it's possibly just good trivia to know that Christmas Tree Lane was the first piece of production that picked up after the pandemic. So yes, Alicia Witt was who we were looking for here. Yeah. I guess you are, the, it is your podcast, so you can decide whether you get the points on that or not. Well, no, no, I mean, I definitely wouldn't, but I mean, yeah, she, she played Carnegie Hall. I've definitely yeah. written before about her being a piano virtuoso as a child. She played Carnegie Hall. Um, yeah, that was absolutely a, a worthwhile thing to test knowledge of. And He's dating thus, Ben Folds, isn't that she? Was or she was way to get in. That I'm not sure of. Probably. I mean, um, everyone does, I think. For Yeah, it's, it's her turn, I think. <laughs> um, okay, before we go into our final three questions, I'll give a score update. It is Troy in the lead at 22.4, followed by Victoria at 18.1, and Yogesh at 15.1. Perhaps I was a little bit too hard on writing the questions for our illustrious host. Future Yogesh here. Troy's score was announced correctly, but at this point I was actually in second place with 17.1 points and Victoria in third place with 16.1 points. All right, moving on to Victoria's final question, which can be stolen. Inspired by a talk she heard at Camp JS, Kyle Gusset wrote the Medium.com article Ruby on Rails plus Knitting in which she described what company is a game changer. Dembray also praised this company for its successful deployment of Ruby on, Rail, on Ruby on Rails in a 2009 interview with one of its co-founders. Who's this question for? Is it Troy? Uh, it's Victoria's question, so you and Troy have a chance at it first. Okay. Do you know what Camp JS is? I do not know. Development of Ruby on Rails. So Ruby is a Pokemon game, isn't it? I believe you. 
<laughs> it doesn't really get further out of my wheelhouse than Pokemon. But same, honestly. same. Oh, what could this be? So maybe we should start. Do you, do you know anything about Ruby on Rails? That name or is, like, yeah, vaguely rings. They ring a very, very faint bell. But if it's not like a game of some sort, then it might be a shade of makeup. Um, yeah, all I can tell you about Ruby on Rails is that it's a programming language and uh, oh. based on based on Ruby. So like Ruby is like the primary language, and then Ruby on Rails is some sort of like derivative of it or, or second. I see. Yeah, application of it. Okay, so so game changer in terms of I guess integrating it. Oh. This is ringing some kind of bell because knitting has been associated with programming. So this is this is something really far, deep, very deep down in my memory. But there's some because like programming is binary, and there's like you know some kind of connection between knitting. Like it can also be a on or off type thing, really in logic. But are they just asking who developed? So they're asking who developed the language. So I mean, is it you know something like Python or something? Yeah. It looks like use of Ruby on Rails. So like they used it in programming oh. something. Oh, so yeah. like deployment, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So could it be something that's like trying to get girls into coding, like Mattel or Hasbro? It could be related to like Carly Fawcett, girls can code. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting, interesting line of thought. Is JS also a career? I mean, can't get good, because the founders yeah. have the initials JS. Camp JS. Could it be? Oh well, JavaScript. Like, could it be related oh. to Oracle? Huh. But it, it it seems like that would be too easy of an in for like a question like this, right? I don't know. And Maybe. well, at least today, Oracle administers JavaScript. I think it was developed at Sun Microsystems, right? Yeah, that that means more. Yeah. That. It could be. I mean, since if you're you're a certain Ruby on Rails is a uh, well, I know Ruby is a programming language, so yeah. Makes sense. Um, yeah, that's also programming. Okay, what company then? So we're in sort of the we're in the the tech sector again, likely, especially from the Ruby on Rails. Says that yeah, describes the company as a game changer. So part of me wonders if it's some kind of startup because yeah, like, yeah, you know, disruptive presence. Possibly like a pro like relatively prominent co-founder, at least like somebody who would be worth interviewing and including in a question, maybe. Right, I was thinking that too, but yeah, there have been a few. I mean, Ashton Kutcher has been involved in Silicon Valley, but this does seem to be leaning a little, maybe <sighs> a little toward uh, female skewing. I think I think Ruby on Rails is like a popular language with programmers because it's easy. It's easy to use and like is easy. Yeah, just like easy to manipulate. I could be totally. I apologize for anybody out there that knows anything about programming. I could be totally wrong, but <laughs> well, so I think. Well involve getting young people into coding. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I just, I know Carly Kloss has been involved with that because of her code with Kloss yeah. initiative. If she had a company, I probably should know its name, but it's not coming to me. And that would like, you know, tie in at least like tangentially to like fashion if we're doing like a meta question here. Do you want to try it? I think I don't know her, I don't know the name of the company. I think it's, is it Girls Who Code? Is that that it? Girls can code. <laughs> also, yeah, in 2009, that's like over a decade ago. Yeah, Carly Kloss is still in her 20s, right? I think she's in her early 30s now. Like she's sort of like, she's still modeling a little bit because she's such a big name, but like she's sort of like 
you know, grad, graduated onto like sort of other stuff now. Hmm. But that does seem a while ago. I don't know if she was really a teen in 2009. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree there. Like this may be too early for like her to have the like sort of stature to like found something like this. Yeah, maybe we should go back to JS. Yeah. And who, who has those in his church? Jessica Simpson, um, John could it, could it be something like Pinterest? Like that was founded a, around then? All those like sort of like social media 2.0 companies were founded around that time period. Or Etsy. Yeah, exactly. Etsy, Etsy also. But why? Like there isn't anything that's like particularly special about like the coding aspect of any of those websites. So. Some, uh, man. Someone did some gaming company put out some kind of device you could use, like you could like I don't know, upload your knitting patterns or something to it, mm. or some kind of rapid prototyping thing. Or... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, something related to design or like making design easier. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. not really coming up with much here. Yeah. Did you want to just go back to the JavaScript Sun thing? Uh. I feel like Ruby on Rails, though, like, you know, far, like Sun Microsystems, I think was dead and buried at that point. We go with Oracle. I don't know who would be praising them, but. <laughs> it's been a while since they've been really a game changer. In exactly. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like this is like a, yeah, like a startup type company. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess I probably should know more about those because I'm getting an MBA and studying those kind of things, but. It's really idiosyncratic what kind of things you have. My, Genevieve, my wife, she works in tech and would probably know this. Like, if I were. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've got like a lot of the pieces here and we're just like missing like the like connection to like tie them up. Uh, I'm guessing it's got to be related to like coding, like a, like a coding initiative because like Camp JS seemed, it would be weird to talk about other stuff. At like something that's like specific for what we think is JavaScript. Like, and there's so much like coding or related language in the question. Since we are a half hour over and you're starting to repeat yourselves, I might prompt you for an answer. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, uh, you want to try the, the girls who code thing? Okay, sure. Why not? All right, we'll we'll go with that. Girls who code. So, for what it's worth, Carly's company is called Coding with a Clo- or Code with Clossy. Um, but, but I'm I'm pretty sure from all the smiles that I saw that Victoria does know the answer to this. I'm about about ninety percent sure I have this. I, I did think about Etsy, which you guys mentioned, but given the timing and and the fact of it having been created by a solo knitter and programmer, I think the answer is very likely to be Ravelry, which is the major social network for knitters and crocheters. It also does have like a thing where you can buy sell patterns, you can catalog all of your stuff, but. It, and it having been done by a solo programmer, it was considered a pretty major feat. So I think that's almost certainly going to be right. And it's also a reason why the name of the founder wouldn't have been mentioned, because whoever wrote this question probably would have known that I would have recognized the name of the founders. So I'm going to say Ravelry. In fact, when I originally wrote the question, Susanna told me that it was too much of a gimme for Victoria. And so it's been since edited. But yes, Ravelry is what we were looking for here. Very good. Uh, it, one of the interesting facts that, that would have been a bonus question if this were stolen is that Ravelry was ahead of the trend of other social media websites in banning pro-Trump talk all the way back in June of 2019, which is pretty amazing. That was, that was controversial. There, Ravelry is no stranger to controversy. 
There is there is more knitter drama than you would ever imagine. I didn't even know knitter <laughs> drama was a word, so that's amazing. Oh, it's a thing. Wait, wait, a subculture that has drama within it. Yeah, it, it, there, right. I believe I believe that Ravelry is over a million users. Not so. just drama, but an actual portmanteau to, to connote that drama. Is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, uh, say, I'm familiar with much smaller communities that have their share of drama. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And on that note, we'll move on to Troy's question, which can be stolen by Victoria and Yogesh. Following a particular sartorial choice made by a sitting president, a legislator from the opposing party groused that this choice showed a lack of seriousness by the president, saying, there's no way any of us can excuse what the president did yesterday. ISIS is watching. The White House press secretary replied that the president stands squarely behind the decision that he made yesterday. It's the Thursday before Labor Day. He feels pretty good about it. Who was the president and what was the choice? Okay, so whose question? This is... It's Troy's question for you and your guest to steal right now. So it's going to be, so this is probably going to be like a, a, like street fashion question. That's probably gonna be the category. This does not have to do with day trading. (laughs) Um, uh, I mean, this definitely sounds like somebody talking about Obama. Um, Thursday before Labor Day. I mean, the thing you're not supposed to do after Labor Day is wear white shoes. So could it be Obama wearing like white tennis shoes? I was thinking something along those lines. The ISIS is watching made me think of someone criticizing Obama. Obama was famously criticized over really minor things like- Yeah, and I mean, if it is, I mean, they capitalized ISIS in what we can see that was typed, which means that it's after the existence of ISIS, which certainly narrows down the- I didn't I mean, know I'd be pasting. So some of the things like capitalization are simply for my own benefit. Yeah, but still, if there's if there are clues, we're going to use them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, a, it's just the mention of ISIS, especially because like now they usually now call it ISIL. So yeah, of- that's true. So, but I mean, it, it really it really does limit the choices of president. Assuming that they are an American president, they may not be. Mm-hmm. It could be a French president, although White House press secretary replied that the president said yeah. it really, it, it, so it basically has to be Obama or Trump. Yeah, and that that language as well, that's sort of like, that, that doesn't seem like something you'd hear from like Sean Spicer or, you know, one of the Trump secretaries. They're usually just either non-responsive or outright nasty. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be like a Josh Ernest kind of thing. I agree. So I think we're definitely leaning towards Obama as being the president, unless this is some very serious misdirection. So Thursday before Labor Day, that would be either very beginning of September or it would be August. Mm-hmm. Um, are there major like solemn events that happen around then? I mean, it's not the day of a major Remembrance Day type holiday or Veterans Day. None of those are around there. <sighs> Lack of seriousness. So, I mean, it'd be something where he would be expected to. So Is wearing, that- I really do suspect that it involves wearing white. Yeah. When I saw Labor Day, I couldn't associate that with anything other than the thing about wearing white. I mean, unless it's wearing jeans. Hmm. But I like, I, I really think it's. Does the white shoes thing apply to men? I mean, if Are you're men not supposed for, to wear white shoes after Labor Day, or is that only women? I don't know. I mean, I've heard stuff about wearing white after Labor Day. I never understood it, but I, I thought it was under the large category of white American people things that I just don't understand. So we could. I mean, it could be just wearing like a, I mean, given, given what Troy's categories are, like, I doubt it's just something like wearing white. It's going to be something more 
specific and it but, might be something like wearing a t-shirt or wearing something by a particular designer maybe some designer isis was fond of what the president did yesterday isis is watching did he wear something with arabic on it i mean i feel like the implication is going is just going to be that he was underdressed in some way jeans t-shirt or the white white after labor day but i'm i'm struggling with how this is going to tie into to troy's categories did he wear a hat indoors or that's something else oh maybe wore a baseball cap backwards he could have been watching i mean he he went to baseball games sometimes that's going on in august and early september wearing a backwards baseball cap would kind of fit all of it that's something mcconnell would say uh, i mean i could buy it. i don't remember a specific headline like that but i mean I'm no sure. i don't either but I, I would not be terribly likely to remember it i'm not terribly great at current events <laughs> Yeah, so so the wearing white thing, it just feels a little too easy for the. the I agree, one. I agree. I think it's going to be something a little bit less intuitive than that. I don't think he dyed his hair or anything. I think that would have made a lot of headlines. Exactly. So I mean, I, I bet it's a backwards baseball cap. I don't know why I I feel good about that, but I do. Okay, I'm I'm fine with that. Are you sure? I mean, it's, it's at a point. I think we're just you know we could speculate further, but no, there's nothing that's going to seem more likely than that okay we're gonna say obama wore a backwards baseball cap hey they're saying obama wore a backwards baseball cap troy what do you think this is when obama wore like a tan or beige suit and republicans just like lost their mind about it it was such a huge controversy in 2014 that obama wore a tan suit that this country (laughs) even has its own wikipedia page devoted to pages (laughs) upon pages of people opining on that sartorial choice so yes troy you get the points on that one good job troy which category was this part of menswear of the 2010s And on the points from that, Troy has regained the lead. So going into the final question, it is Troy 25.4, Victoria 24.1, and Yogesh 15.1. But of course, it all comes down to this. It actually doesn't. It actually doesn't because if I get it, Troy gets it. (laughs) Okay, nothing comes down to this. You guys are making hosting very difficult. (laughs) There is no drama whatsoever, but just for the heck of it. The scores here were in fact Victoria 21.1, Troy 27.4, and myself 17.1. So contrary to what we all believed at the time, this question will in fact determine second place. In an unfortunate bit of real-life foreshadowing, Desmond Llewellyn's final scene comes in The World Is Not Enough. James asks Q whether he is retiring, and W evades the questions by responding that he's always tried... I'm sorry, that's what to say, and Q evades the questions by responding that he's always tried to teach James two things. What are those two things? The last words we ever hear from Llewellyn's Q before the character supposedly retires and the actor passed away. Knitting and social psychology. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I've never seen this movie, so uh, yeah, I like your your, your guess. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it either. It's completely, um, I mean, how to hold his liquor and how to hold his luger. <laughs> <laughs> eh? <laughs> how to how to pull like a pen weapon out of a shoe, something like that. <laughs> I, I I honestly don't think we're gonna come up with anything that isn't like. A joke. Yep. So, 
Do your, <laughs> do your best joke, Victoria. <laughs> I think I just did my best too. <laughs> I only have like three. <laughs> the homage to Joe Don Baker's performance in Living Daylights. You had your eight jokes, now I'll have my 80. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we'll just pass this to Yogesh and he yeah. can clean it up. Yep, go ahead. Okay, this is another one where I have to scrape the bottom of my memory banks, but there are a few things that make this one easier than others. I've recently been putting myself to sleep with a podcast called From Rewatch with Love. These two guys basically just, you know, rewatch all the Bond movies and talk about them scene by scene in depth. In many cases, their podcast, the podcast episode devoted to a movie is in many cases longer than the movie itself, which tells you how much detail they go into. But the world is not enough. I've been meaning to revisit as well for another reason, which ties in to social personality psychology. It's the only Bond movie directed by the recently deceased Michael Apted. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, whose um, Up series is frequently a tool used by personality psychology teachers. And as, yes, as Susanna pointed out, the theme song from Garbage, sung by Shirley Manson. So putting another cap on that little theme that's been running through the whole game. But I did, I did watch that episode on this because I, I actually like, I'm not a huge fan of any of the Pierce Brosnan ones, except The World Is Not Enough, which in spite of the, the correct, rightly mocked miscasting of Denise Richards, is still very entertaining and, and one of the, the best Pierce Brosnan movies. And of course, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Desmond Welland's performance in every single movie from, from Russia with Love through The World Is Not Enough, with the exception of Live and Let Die which his character did not appear in. And there was another an outcry that he was brought back in, in every single one after that, up until he died. Um, and got you know, some larger, larger roles, fairly touching, touching scenes in Twice License to Kill. But, you know, the big, the big moment is when he disappears. Because in, in the World Not Enough, they introduced a character called R, played by John Cleese as his assistant, who then took over the key role in the following movie. And he, he I think, maybe knowing that this was going to be his last go-around, they had him disappear off screen by sinking sinking into the ground and right before he does that he says two things and one of them is never let them see you bleed and the other one is i don't know if i have the wording right always have an escape plan verbatim that is exactly right never let them see you bleed always have an escape plan it's an excellent note to end the podcast on you of course (laughs) took all of my little notes that i had for things to comment on about john cleese taking over but we'll always remember llewellyn is the best cue you can debate who the best bond may be but i think that it is universally recognized that this parting scene is very sad for those of us who care about the bond movies at all because we never get to see llewellyn again and on that note, Yogesh does get the final points of the game, but it is Troy who emerges as the victor for this special birthday podcast episode. Uh, thank you again for letting me be the host. It was really entertaining to see some of the brightest minds doing their work. And I really, really just want to give a special shout out again to David Plotkin, Susanna Brooks, Ronnie Jackson, and Tim Rich, without which this probably would have just been a bunch of questions about TV shows that I like. So <laughs> thank you all so much for, and thank you for having us. This was great. Yeah. Yeah, it was this was awesome. I really appreciate the opportunity to to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll, we'll I think I ended the traditional way, each of us basically getting like a short amount of time to say anything we like about anything at all going in reverse order of scoring, which I believe would be Troy, Victoria, and myself. Is that the order of score the order of finish? Correct. 
future Yogesh here. Scoring is complicated, I've messed it up before myself, so don't be too hard on Jason, but the actual final scores were Troy in first place with 27.4, myself in second place with 22.1, and Victoria very narrowly in third place with 21.1. However, because I did not discover these errors until after the recording session was over, we recorded our final statements in the order you hear here. Okay, so yeah, let's start with Troy then. Wow, I didn't plan a speech. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this Anything is- Anything you want to plug? Uh, <laughs> Where can we see you? Well, you can, you can watch Nutrimilf <laughs> Hotel every week in Online Wrestling USA with a lot of the people on this podcast. And shout out to Victoria, who is one of my favorite people in trivia, and I'm privileged to like to play on her team and you know be able to be her friend. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm seriously gonna cry now. So I'd like to say thank you to all my you know teammates for all the various things I do. Thank you to to Yogesh for inviting us. This was this was wonderful. And whenever I have a chance to to plug something, I always plug Paul Farmer's organization, Partners in Health, which I think does some of the best work in the world with making healthcare accessible to people who would otherwise have literally zero access to it. They're a wonderful organization. They're very well run. Partners in Health. They're great. Give them your money. All right. So yeah, I just you know I want to say that. Um... As I as I tell everyone who appears on this podcast, there, there's a loose coupling between how well people do and how good they are, quote unquote. And there's mm-hmm. so much randomness, such small sample size, everything. But nevertheless, like knowing there is a, a loose but positive correlation, I could have heightened the probability of myself looking good by picking literally anyone other than Victoria and Troy. <laughs> Like, there are four people who outscored me on the WQC in the entire world this year, and I picked two of them. And there was a reason I did that. I wanted to send a message that this hobby we do, like like all things, you know, that are worth doing, it's not about looking good. It's not about what social psychologists call performance orientation, just caring about looking like you're better than other people, right? It's about what they call mastery orientation, which is about really being the best, which means pushing yourself, including by testing yourself against people who are better than you and daring to look bad and to lose. You know, people who don't, people who don't lose, people who never look foolish are people who don't take risks and people who don't try and be better. And if you care about something, any kind of domain, don't be one of those people. That's the main thing I wanted to say, but you know, in terms of, uh, you know, I picked the categories that reflect things I was interested in that I could maybe have a somewhat comprehensive knowledge of, they're not that comprehensive. Maybe I, if I ever do this again, then there'll be a few other ones. But you know, I think I think Redheads and James Bond have enough fans already, so I won't. I don't feel any great need to, <laughs> to to promote them. But I will say, I mean, you know, learn about social psychology. It's important. It's relevant. It's you know, some parts of it have been problematic. There, are, you know, even as an expert, there are some parts that I don't place a great deal of value in. But it's important to look at the world around you, to look for patterns, to try and explain things, and to find ways to scientifically test them. I mean, that's, that's really what it's about. Not just, I mean, as human beings, we're driven to have stories about how the world around us works, but, you know, everyone has different stories. And the point of social psychology is to really concretely ask, how can we test which of these stories really explains the world and which one just, you know, sound good? And that is absolutely a worthwhile thing to do. And, you know, if you take nothing else away from kind of the, the exploration we've done in those topics here, let it be that. Here, here. 
right. No, it, it was a privilege to, to play against you guys. And thank you, Jason. And thanks to all the writers. And um, the questions were terrific. They were very, Appreciate very it, good. Very good questions. Yes, thank you very much to you, Jason, for editing and hosting and to all of the writers for the contributions. It's just, it's incredible, really, that I could just kind of put out a call and people would volunteer their time to do that. I'm so grateful. Maybe maybe this should be an annual uh, birthday thing. I mean, I know, I know I'd come back. I think, Victoria, <laughs> I mean, can we say no to any of this stuff, right? <laughs> we are constantly sending each other syringe emojis. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll do a quick outro and then we can, uh, we can listen. If Susanna wants to share her extra questions, we can do that. This has been episode seven of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Thanks for listening.